the python isn't just destroyed and disintegrated no the body is down below the temple and the fumes the smoke the rising from the ashes rising from the ashes that's right and one's the sun and one's the moon rising from the ashes based on saturn being like the lord of karma and the lord the lord the lord of karma karma asserting this just as you know me this is scholars have said this for centuries hello comes from helios and l is a form of helios or baal is a, it's the same god is that in the bible is the god of the bible is associated with the same constellation as Fire Tribe, a warm welcome into a conversation with David Matheson. It is our second time speaking with the gentleman, and today is a great conversation. We get emotional, uh, you know. It's a it's a long conversation, and uh, it it develops beautifully over uh, the transition is great over the over the lapse of time here and of course we are bringing back rfta news we have a sweet episode for you guys today on that as well good little segment it should be should be fun got some uh got some returning favorites for the rfta news segments and of course, if you are not on the Telegram group chat, make sure that you go and do that. Absolutely. Telegram is a social media platform, but it's not like Facebook and Instagram. It's different because it allows group messaging. And no, it's not like subreddit and all these other things. It's it's kind of like a blend of of the other ones you know facebook and instagram but done in a pretty smooth way i like it i enjoy it so make sure you go on over there and get that join the chat please do if 
you want to support Dan and I further, you can subscribe to the Patreon for three bucks a month. It's absolutely worth it. We have a bunch of awesome bonus content and monthly stuff coming out all the time. It's amazing. And we love all of our Patreon subscribers. You guys are the saving grace of a young man's dream coming true and coming forth. Also, without further ado, I do want to mention Vision Switch. Sabaya Sogard, clairvoyant and, might I say, psychic medium of sorts? A dweller within the void of energies. She does amazing, great work, and if you are a listener to the show, you have not only heard her on the podcast, but you have also heard me talk about Vision Switch, which is her business. And she is being such an awesome human that she is allowing anybody from the Fire Tribe community to get a great discount at some past life readings, at energy healings, energy readings, and so much more. You can go and click the website link down in the description and see further details. Just give her contact and let her know that you're from the Fire Tribe and bada bing, bada boom, dealios, dealios, friends. Well, I'm not going to hold you much longer. Oh, wait. Yes, I am. One final thing. If you haven't checked out the Occultus Mundi, a new journal slash zine that some of us uh, humans are collaborating on, we got it available over on the oneonone.com, the one-on-one podcast with our good friend Juan Ayala. And we are all writing articles, uh, going in deeper on the topics that we talk about and being able to put a creative spin on it through writing. And we will send you a physical copy of the journal so you can have a physical book at your fingertips supporting the research. And also, guess what? Email Juan or myself or Rising from the Ashes. If you want to write articles, we would absolutely love to have you so let's get to chatting make sure that you email us make sure you go pick up a copy it is famously priced at seven dollars and 77 cents of course a homage to john d (laughs) hey and honestly this time without further ado get ready for some r f t a news r f I'm the boss. No, I am the boss. Listen to Daddy Dan. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. No, I am the boss. <laughs> Jesus Christ, you guys. You take over everything like chlamydia. So, um, if you guys are listening to this episode, it's uh it's probably the month of October officially. And we have found ourselves in a new a new zodiac transit and we have here with us our most amazing friend 
um, the gravy connoisseur of things celestial. <laughs> and so <laughs> what's going on, dude? Can you tell us a little Give bit? Give us some star that? gravy. Yeah, just cooking up gravy in the celestial pot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what's up? <laughs> yeah, let's I would wrap, let. Let's wrap this whole interview. Let's, oh no, I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I mean, that's very Freestyle. appropriate for Libra. I'm not gonna lie. Okay, well, <laughs> so first of all, the the ingress of Sun into Libra happened on the 22nd. All right, so we're already partway through Libra at the time of recording. And when this comes out, we'll be, we'll already be in the thick of it. But um, I just want to spend like just a couple minutes to talk about that particular moment, the equinox moment, because it's, it carries the energy forward for the next six months, right? So it's actually significant. It's not just this month that that ingress chart affects, it's going to carry forward. Um, there was something really special that happened at the moment of equinox. So i'm sure everybody's aware that we're in a mercury retrograde cycle right now and um ain't the only thing in retrograde yeah exactly (laughs) basically everything is just about (laughs) but anyway so there's this moment in the retrograde cycle where the planet that's in retrograde conjuncts the sun exactly it's called a kazemi and um, it's either an interior or an exterior conjunction, meaning in between the sun and earth or on the other side of the earth. This one in particular, hey. hey? Now, now you can see me? Now you now <laughs> You're cute. Okay, so anyway, <clears throat> this is an interior conjunction. Okay, so why does this matter? They have, they carry different energies. One particular Kazemi is like the intention, the seeding, like the new moon cycle. Right, that's this, that's this one that just happened. The exterior is similar to a full moon cycle. So it's like the intention and then the execution of that intention. So <laughs> the, the fact that this Kazemi happened right on Equinox, <clears throat> it carries forward this energy of, um, well, communication really being a huge, huge, huge integral part for the next six months <clears throat> in the sign of Libra specifically in the first degree, i.e. zero degrees Libra, um, (laughs) negotiations, all right, negotiations between people is absolutely top priority. Um, How can we come to some kind of agreement, right? This is absolutely really, really crucial. So It's going to be really important for us just like as a collective as a group Usa, exactly as family units as friends as lovers as partners to really be trying to understand and look at both sides of situations and come together rather than othering people um even if even if they have been in the wrong in the past right there will be opportunities i think for moments of um, trying to come to understanding, or at the very least, hopefully (laughs) we can find those moments and help facilitate those moments so that, uh, you know, we put out an energy of peace rather than an energy of war, right? Because I'm sure everybody is aware that there is absolutely uh, conflict happening, right? And fomenting in various places around the globe. 
uh, or plane, whatever your view of the earth shape happens to be. So I think it's really, it's just, I just, I can't emphasize that enough as we're coming into Libra season and as we're coming into eclipse season next month, which we'll talk about later, um, like next month, that uh, we try to find, try to find moments where we can really um, negotiate and come to some kind of compromise um, where, where it's possible, right? It's not going to be possible in every situation, obviously, but anyway, so on the 25th, we had the new moon in, in Libra. It's literally three days after, um, the, uh, Libra ingress. So the equinox, which is really beautiful. So that already happened today, this morning, that's the 29th of September, Venus moved into Libra. So this is really beautiful, actually, this transit, because Venus rules the sign of Libra, and it is said when a sign moves into its domicile or its home, it's comfortable, right? It's at home. It can be the most itself. Venus is all about harmony and beauty and peace and the arts, right? So Venus at home in Libra, fucking fabulous. Uh, pardon my French. <laughs> so on the 9th of October... Canadian? Yeah, it's French Canadian. <laughs> Don't forget your poutine. <laughs> Fucking assholes. Anyway. <laughs> take, it, take it easy on my poutine. <laughs> so on the 9th of October is our full moon, okay? So it's the full moon in Aries, right? So sun in Libra, moon in Aries. So I just feel like I need to breathe way more. You know what I mean? The full moon, this is the last lunation before eclipse season, all right? The full moon is a culmination of something, right? Um, I think it's important to note that Jupiter, the planet that carries this energy of expanding and sometimes sometimes carries the signification of like philosophy. It's considered a benefic planet, a right? It can be a father figure, absolutely. Um, <laughs> is in Aries right now, kind of blowing things out of the water <laughs> or blowing things out of proportion. This can be super positive, um, especially for people that are fighting for bodily autonomy, individual rights, um, because that's the energy of Aries. It's about I am. It's about me. It's about uh, the individual. It's also the son of the warrior, right? So there's, <laughs> there's, um, there's lots of really beautiful ways that these kind of lunations can go, and there's some, you know, less beautiful, more literally bloody ways that it can go. Um, it's my hope again, just going back and re-emphasizing the um, the Mercury Cassini at the zero degree Libra point that are uh, at the equinox point rather that we can find ways to um, avoid bigger conflicts. Right. So yeah, those are the dates, big, important dates. Um, what else did I want to say? Actually, I'd really love a quick moment to read something about the Libra archetype, if I may. Okay, cool. Yes, you may. Okay, so this is from the shamanic Thanks. You're funny. <laughs> so this is from the shamanic astrology handbook written by Daniel G. Mario and Kaylin K. Castell. This is about Libra. So first it actually starts with this quote from Clarissa Pinkola Estes. That is how love relationship is meant to work. Each partner transforming the other. The strength and power of each is untangled, shared. He gives her heart drum. 
she gives him knowledge of the most complicated rhythms and emotions imaginable. Who knows what they will hunt together? We only know that they will be nourished to the end of their days. And that was from Women Who Run With The Wolves. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So the primary focus for Libra is investigating the mysteries of conscious equal partnership and relationship that honors each person as having equal value in what they bring to the relationship. It is important to understand that equal in this case does not mean the same. Rather, each person has different skills, insights, wisdom that enhances the relational experience. This is non-hierarchical, I can't say that word, meaning no one is in charge of the relationship or is the primary authority in the relationship. When healthy, there is an equal balance of importance that each person contributes to the relationship exchange. And this is how I really love to look at Libra as an archetype. And um, what I personally strive for in relationships myself is I don't want to be the same um, <laughs> or be the boss over anybody, right? No slaves above, no masters below, or no masters above, no slaves below. Whoa, whoa, Just whoa, whoa, flip whoa, it and flip whoa. it and reverse it, right? What if what if we have a god See? complex and we need to control things <laughs> and have, have puppet strings underneath us in order to make us feel safe and happy? Well, then we're gonna have issues, aren't we? Well, quit being a dude. Oi, oi, oi. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Unwrap it. All right, you too. Unwrap that present. Talk it out. Did you hear that? Talk it out, motherfuckers. Talk it out. To uh, agreements. Talk it out. Yeah, and I mean, that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, right? Um, we're in a really important important transitional phase right now, and I don't mean like the turning of the ages, because yes, that's true as well, but Venus herself the planet and the archetype is going through a very important um, initiation, death and rebirth right now. So in uh, Babylonian astrology, ancient astrology and Hellenistic astrology, they paid a lot of attention to the phase of a planet in relation to the sun. So whether the planet was at its maximum elongation and the farthest away from the sun, whether it was stationing and standing still in the sky, whether it was moving retrograde, whether it was joining up with the sun, right? That's why I mentioned the Cassini with Mercury, or whether it was behind the sun. And Venus has a very beautiful, beautiful um, pattern that she makes in the sky, right? We all know about the five-pointed pentagram shape right all of that beautiful stuff and um right now venus is um quote unquote under the beams of the sun meaning she's invisible to us we, we can't see her anymore because she's going behind the sun so quite literally it is said that she's dying diving into the heart of the sun and because she's old right she needs to be reborn it's like the crone phase so she's going into the beams of the sun to re be reborn as a morning star <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> this this will tie into some other some cycles that we can talk there? about later, but uh there could be the oldest story that we have that talks about this cycle in particular is Inanna going down into the under underworld to see her sister Ashkapal. Um so people can look that up. And yeah, absolutely there there's there's anytime we're talking about death and rebirth there's definitely phoenix symbolism <laughs> but anyway it's a it's an important phase that we're going through right now and um there's a lot more to say about it uh in particular about this 
five-pointed pentagram star that Venus makes. And uh, the um, one of those points is moving from Scorpio into Libra. Uh, it's the first time that it'll be in Libra in our lifetimes, so it's a big deal. What are and, the five yeah, I encourage people the, to look look into that some more. What are the five points at the Venus that it's flower? making right now? Well, what are the five points that the flower itself touches and lands on? Like, is there a specific area that it focuses on? So, yeah, yep, yeah. So, so right now, presently, uh, one of the points is in Capricorn. One of the points is in um, Gemini. One of the points is in Leo. One of the points is in uh, Scorpio, and a missing one. Capricorn, Gemini. Leo, I'm missing one, and Scorpio. So it's making this five-point shape. It's it's escaping me right now. Yeah, so it's making this five-pointed shape, right? So these are the conjunctions that the sun makes with the, the Venus makes with the sun, right? It makes this five-pointed star, and it slowly um, precesses through the zodiac very very slowly over time because it's not a perfect five-pointed star it's off by like just a couple of degrees uh but anyway the the point that's in scorpio that has been in scorpio since we were all born everybody here in this call right now um is moving into libra for the first time in our lifetime it's it's actually a really big deal oh and aries that's the other one thank you oh brain aries okay so anyway kind of a big deal and <laughs> I'm excited about it. I've been studying this a little bit over the last couple of days and I encourage people to um, look up um, Ariel Gutman is her name and the Venus star point to learn more about that. Mm, beautiful. Thank you, Kaylee. Yeah. And uh, Adam Stokes just joined us. So welcome. Hey, Adam. guys. How are you doing, man? Hey, Adam. Hey, guys. Hey, Kaylee. Hey, Dan. Hey, Kaylee, Robert, Kaylee. Good to see you guys. You too, Kaylee's man. It's been, it's been a little bit. And uh, join in on the conversation. So Yeah, that's great, man. That's great. Yeah, I um, I know it's been a while. Uh, a couple weeks back, I got some type of cold. It wasn't COVID because I got I got tested. My doctor said my uh, my COVID test at home wasn't a real test, so they wanted me to go in. Get the I actually anti- went to antigen. the hospital and got tested. Yeah, it, yeah the antigen thing, it, she said it wasn't you know the best test. So they took me to the hospital to get tested. I did not have COVID, but I don't know what it was, man. I felt like utter crap. Wow. Um, and I was like, Dan had texted me and said, um, can you appear? Can you talk um, on Thursday? I was like, if, if I talk, I'm going to sound like like freaking Skeletor, man. So um, <laughs> I'm doing much better now. Everything is everything is good. Good, man. Good. Glad to hear that, man. Yeah, awesome. no, a lot of Glad to hear it. getting uh, hit with some some sicknesses kind of crazy i had two friends in portland get covid straight up they said it's covid at the same time and then uh, my buddy our buddy juan down in florida right before the hurricane hit he got sick laid out pretty good and i was just like man and then he i you know dan told me about you and i was like man there's some bugs going around in the air right now man we got to keep it yeah everybody things are going around my my kids had like a cold as well yeah yeah something's Something was definitely going around, but I'm 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 back on my feet. Yes. It's good to be back and uh miss talking to you guys. Yeah, for sure. Me too, man. Me too. Yeah. Well, uh yeah. So been- how's it going, Adam? Uh what what do you have 
What do you got for us today, man? I've got some shameless self-promotion for you guys uh, yes. t- tonight because <laughs> next Excellent. week I'm headed to Virginia Beach, actually, uh, with my whole family for Edgar Casey's uh, um, Association for Research and Enlightenment. Uh, oh. They have an ancient civilizations conference. I'm excited as hell about this because I'm participating. I'm giving, I have two uh, spots uh, that I'll be presenting a lecture at. Um, and I'm really excited about this. Uh, Freddie Silva is going to be there. Oh, nice. John Van Alken's going to be there. Um, so some people who have done really uh, serious research on uh, ancient civilizations, uh, kind of presenting an alternative. And of course, in my view, a more accurate view mm-hmm. of what ancient civilizations were like are going to be there. And I'm just, I'm really excited about it. They put me up in a hotel, a really nice hotel. I was at Virginia Beach with my family like five years ago. Um, so it'll be nice to nice to be back there. Um, we we visited the Association of Research and Enlightenment when we were, when we were there five years ago. So um, it'll be really cool to be back. I don't you guys ever been there before? It's a really cool no, place. I mean, I, I've never even heard of no. the Edgar Casey Research Facility. That sounds something I'm going to look into. That's yeah, they have all of his psychic readings now. The um the library I was really pissed off about this when I was there five years ago. The library was cl- closed under construction, but they have all of his psychic readings, uh, basically detailed records of all of his psychic readings, um, everything that he talked about. He talks a lot about ancient civilizations, um, Atlantis, Lemuria, and I'm going to be touching on some of that stuff in my lecture. So my lecture is mainly on North American mounds. Um, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and basically how we kind of have this negative cosmic energy in some of these mounds and how this ties into uh, some of the Casey readings. Because Casey talks about when Atlantis was destroyed, the sons of Belial mixing with the Israelites and coming over to the uh, to what is now uh, the Americas. Um, so, and kind of bringing uh, some, uh, some negative... Uh, energy with them, and I'm saying I argue that some of the mounds, not all the mounds, a lot of the mounds have a peaceful purpose. They're temple sites, uh, they're Israelite temple sites, uh, but some of the mounds uh, have kind of a more sinister and nefarious purpose. Oh, um, especially uh, mounds such as the Serpent Mound, and I argue that there's kind of a Gnostic, um, evil Gnostic. I don't think Gnostics are evil. I love Gnostics, but within the Gnostics, uh, a sect of evil Gnostics um, who I think influenced kind of. Uh, the spirituality and uh, the type of rituals that we get uh, at the Serpent Mound. So um, if you want to take a, a long, long drive to uh, Virginia Beach, um, it will be streamed um, so you can watch it. You can watch it as well. Is there tickets? How much are the ticket oh, prices awesome. for a stream? Uh, the, tickets are too darn ex- the tickets are expensive, man. It's like a couple hundred dollars. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. Heavy scholarship so, too, right? Like, there's a lot of scholars that are going to be it's there. Heavy, and... Yeah, man, it's it's heavy. It's, I'm a little bit intimidated. They did a whole. <laughs> um, I did a podcast uh, for for uh, the Association of Research and Enlightenment. So I'm a little bit uh, int- intimidated. They're wonderful people, awesome people. They have so many resources, Roman and Dan, uh, with ancient civilization. They've been doing this stuff for years. They've had Eric von Donneken come. Wow. Uh, they've had all like the big heavy hitters. Eric von um, So I'm honored. I'm absolutely honored to be a part of this, but I'm also like intimidated as hell. Mm. Hell yeah. That's exciting. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. yeah I'm, that... I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. 
I think that positive and negative energy goes for for all things, though, right? Uh, there's yeah. positive and negative Christians, Catholics, exactly, Satanists, even uh, Gnostics, <laughs> wizards, yeah, whatever yep. it is, you name it. You know, uh, esoteric people. Uh, you know, like Crowley, not so yeah. much a good guy, but. You know that I think that kind of it's idea that, it's goes that dualism all, that's built into the world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's that dualism that you guys yeah. talk about, that Kelsey's talked about, the, um, that that good and that good and evil. As uh, they say in that one of my favorite movies, that's Caliber. Uh, there's never one without the other. Um, so go figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just went to the Toltec mounds in Arkansas over the weekend, and so I kind of had some questions for you uh today and that is like are all the mounds presumed to be like burials because it seems like in in this area they were basically saying that they were burial sites with the mounds yeah but it seems like seems like they'd be a lot more than just burial sites why would you bury uh bodies and such big enormous mounds and right in the place where you live what is what is the aspects to it is there certain like magic aspects to it like where's the shaman like chilling on top and getting the energy from the ancestors or or yeah, what was kind of going on in that in that space yeah what i like to say is that not all mounds are created equal so some mounds were specifically burial mounds i believe the adina uh did burial uh, the Hopewell less so, uh, but some mounds are just effig effigy mounds, and some mounds are just um, kind of astrology mounds aligned with the stars, aligned with the planets, mm -hmm. um, and they had specific uh, kind of purposes of um, transporting uh, people both to the afterlife and bringing them from, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, kind of pre-existence, I would say, um into uh this life so they kind of served as a doorway both out of this life and into this life so um there's a lot of stuff going on uh with the mounds they served multiple purposes some of them had had purposes on top of purposes so for example a lot of the hopewell mounds are temple mounds but they're also burial mounds because the wealthy people the wealthy aristocracy wanted to be buried in the most, going to your point about, you know, these being sacred sites, spiritual sites, they wanted to be buried in the most sacred place because they thought that that was the door to get them uh, to the afterlife. So um, a lot mm -hmm. of stuff uh, going on there. Um, yeah. Do you have any pictures of the mounds in Arkansas? Yeah, I do. They're, they look like big dirt hills. I mean, nothing. <laughs> those, are pretty, those are pretty cool mounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It looked like they were kind of, uh, you know, there's like weeds growing out of the top. They weren't like nice and pristine looking condition. Uh, I'm sure they probably would have looked different, you know, a thousand years ago or so. It's but kind of a shame. Just Some like states. Big grassy weed field hills. Yeah. You know, it depends on the state. Some states take care of their mounds really well. So I was in um, this past uh, August, I was at, uh, I was in Moundsville, West Virginia. And the Grave Creek Mound, they preserve that great. There's a whole museum there. And then other mounds, you go to Delaware, and it's just like nobody gives a damn about these things. Like, there's just, it's all overgrown and everything. And it's really kind of a shame. So the management of the mounds, unfortunately, differs uh, from state to state. 
Um, I like to see one of my own kind of pet peeves is more a concern for conservation of these mounds um, and really kind of uh, restoring them uh, to their full glory. If you look at the Grave Creek Mound, um, again, if you looked at that 100 years ago, it was all just like weeds and grass and overgrown and stuff. And uh, the, the state of West Virginia, uh, shout out to them, really uh, took a lot of care and effort to preserve it and to bring it back to its full glory. And it looks glorious. It looks beautiful now. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, the park itself was pretty nice. Uh, it looked like they kept the grass down for the most part, but the mounds, it almost seems like they yeah. didn't want to disturb anything with it or, maybe yeah. mess with or it. emphasize maybe that they're the mounds are. I, I yeah, that's, that's how I felt with Delaware. Like it would, there was a whole, it was a whole park. Um, there's a whole Cape park, um, Cape Chenolan or something that, um, I took the kids to the park it was gorgeous. Um, they have a whole little section, uh, cause it was basically bunkers during world war II. Um, so they have a whole section there. The park is gorgeous, but where the mound is actually at is like overgrown. There's like a playground next to mm. it, but <laughs> nobody knows this is an ancient mound and that this is really important. The only way you would know about this mound is reading Greg Little's book about Native American mounds. So, wow. um, I think, I think Roman, I think Roman, you, you hit it on the head. They don't want people to know. And that, that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. I'm not going to get into that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could. <laughs> So the 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 conference. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I think I you know I think a lot of this the, the lack of maintenance. I think you know it goes back to this agenda we talked about it before with the Smithsonian, um, and with kind of how American academia was geared towards just hushing up any of the history of you know pre-Columbia America and uh, the Native American peoples. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean there, there's obviously something to that because. You know, we have so many opinions and we have to dig in all these esoteric realms just to try to, you know, pick up any sort of inkling as to the purpose yeah. and the function of yeah. these things. And that alone is, you know, it shows that there's been massive suppression. But there's a lot of good people like yourself, Greg Little, so on and so forth, that are doing the good work to to crack those codes and crack those ciphers. Yeah. Yeah. At, at these particular yes. bounds, they said that the the Toltec, they just call them Toltec. They actually have another different name. Uh, they said they called them the Toltec because they just associated it with the Toltec people from Mexico, but they're actually called like uh, the the Playa something uh, yeah. people. And uh, basically, they're saying that like they had came there later and then they disappeared or left. It almost seemed like maybe they built it or maybe it was already there. Do you think that, like all of these mounds were built by native Americans or were they possibly built by previous cultures that existed before, like around, yeah. you know, the AD time period? The answer to that, Dan, I would say both. So you have the mound builders, the Hopewell and Adina, who seem to be a separate culture from the Native Americans. And then they interact with mm. the Native Americans. The Native Americans build their own mounds and their own places. Uh, greatest example of that is this is Cahokia in Illinois, which is a massive, huge uh, mound site. But it dates late. It dates to around the uh, 10th century uh, CE, 10th century AD. And it seems to be an imitation of 
the earlier mounds of the mound builders, the Hopewell and Adina. When I use the term mound builders, I always refer to the Hopewell and Adina, but there are mounds being built after that in imitation um, and under the influence of, of the mound builders who themselves die out. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I had a question. I forgot it. Roman? Yeah. Kayla? So I, I wanted to, I wanted to just talk a little bit more, pick your brain about the conference. Uh, what are you specifically, um, and you did kind of allude to it, but what, what are you going to be focusing on for your presentations? So my presentation is called, not to give too much away, Lands of Gadianton. Um, it's looking at uh, the Na uh, Native American mounds and kind of the correlation between what we find in them archaeologically, what's mentioned in the Book of Mormon, surprise, surprise, and in the <laughs> Edgar Casey and in the Edgar Casey readings. So it's kind of this um, this correlation between all of those things. Did Edgar Casey go into the mound building cultures in his readings? Did he have some of those? Yes. Uh, he, so he, he says, yeah, very explicitly, he says that the mounds come from both uh, Israelites who, and he has a really interesting, funky date for the Israelites coming here. He says they came, they came to America as early as 3000 BCE. But he also says that the descendants of Atlantis uh, also came over here and, and built these mounds. And he has a connection between Atlantis um, and Egypt. Um, but he, this book, uh, one of my favorite books, almost like a, a mini mm. Bible to me, Edgar Casey on Atlantis. Nice. Um, he talks about uh, the mounds in here. And then Greg Little also has another book, Edgar Casey's Atlantis. Uh, so this is Edgar Casey on Atlantis. Great Little's book is Edgar Casey's Atlantis, and he talks some more about that as well. Oh wow! Um, is there any talk of uh, what Edgar Casey saw as um, what we would consider lost technology of the Atlantean people or the mound builders of how they maybe functioned and moved this much dirt around? Yeah, he says that they're really high tech. They had. Um, so it's interesting because um, as uh, mound researchers such as myself have argued that uh, the giants who were the mound builders had psychic ability and their big, big freaking heads. <laughs> but he also says, uh, Roman, that um, they used, they had like basically um, industrial-like technology from Atlantis that they also used uh, to construct these mounds. So um, think of 19th century industrial age. That's what Casey argues the Atlanteans had before uh, their pride and stuff uh, caused the destruction of their empire. Oy, the pride, <laughs> the pride, the conundrum of the, of the yeah. pride and ego. Story of world history. Yeah, exactly. Just always constantly been at, been at, at wit's ends with each other. It's so interesting. Wow. Well, that's going to be fascinating. Does that have anything to do with lions? With what? With lions. Like the pride comes before the fall. The yeah, lion yeah. symbolism, like coming before like the fall of a civilization. Yeah, from the Bible. Yeah. That, we were talking about cats with uh, Tess Clark. And I was thinking like maybe cats have something to do with catastrophes. Catastrophes. Like they're a, they're a symbol of a catastrophe is about to come. And Kaylee's here. Is there any type of like astro symbolism of cats and cataclysms? Well, 
it's interesting actually that you ask about cats in particular because we were just talking about venus and her cycle and the death and rebirth cycle and i mentioned the story i didn't tell you the story of anana but i mentioned the story of anana and anana is always pictured with a lion so i think that's kind of neat <laughs> that's kind of neat um yeah. But, I mean, it, it depends on your school of thought. If, you, um, if you're familiar with Velikovsky, he talks about disaster cycles related to, like, Venus. And, um, yeah, and there's comets. Um, actually, the study of comets and um, omens related to comets was a huge thing in ancient astrology. It's not an area that I have studied. Mm -hmm. um, but, I don't know, there, there's a thread to pull there for sure. Comets like a buildup of uh, celestial energy, like being portrayed or collected, or comets in the sky and fucking shit up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry, Adam. She's her French Canadian. Yeah, she's French Canadian, so she's got that. Know, you're good. Right <laughs> Which is too much. It's too much for me. Sorry. <laughs> because there, there is like a. a uh, a goddess in Egypt named Sekhmet, and yeah. uh, she's the lion lioness-headed goddess, and well, there's, she's there's the Bassett goddess of war. Well, who's a freaking yeah. cat? Mm, yeah, Basset, Basset. Yeah, yeah. So, and I mean, if we know cats, we all have. I mean, maybe some of us haven't had a cat, but. If you've ever lived with a cat, you know. I had, we had a cat. A he, died, of... he died sadly, but I Aww. love that cat. Aww. Yeah, they, this is you know that ago. they cause a, a lot of catastrophe. Yep. They like purposely knock stuff over off tables while they're staring you in the eye. <laughs> yeah, just yes. for fun. My so cat kind of like wine over and spilled wine onto my uh, sweater. It was a really nice sweater, deliberately. He knew damn well what he was doing. <laughs> and, uh, and gave the look, was like, what, the look was like, what are you going to do about it? And yeah, I was looking he's cute and cuddly. It's, uh, it's that chaos, <laughs> that chaos vibe. Like, they, they said that Bastet, you know, the cat, she's a cat god and the daughter of Ra or Re, what have you. But it was a ferocious nature. Um, yeah. And... Uh, I don't know. The, I, I think Bastet was like, had this really interesting, um, like, amulet that she held that looks almost like a light bulb or something. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, it looks like an arm. Yeah, yeah, I used to have a statue of Bastet. It's, come, it's around her, uh, she wears it around her neck as well. Yeah, what does that symbolize, as? Do you know? I'm not sure. I know that, you know, going to your point about Bastet being chaos. She kind of balances out really well with Ra because Ra's the god of order. He speaks things into existence. And then you have uh, Bastet, who's kind of the more chaotic god. So it's kind of like the dualism uh, that we've all been talking about. Um, you kind of see that in play with, with Bastet and Ra. So it's really interesting. Hmm. The cat and the dog dichotomy. Yeah. yeah. Moon cat and sun dog. Moon cat, sun dog, straight up. Absolutely. Oh. Interesting. Interesting. I love that. That's the flavor of this discussion as we're in Libra season, which is literally about balance. <laughs> that's really cool, actually. It always aligns. Yeah, I mean, what what zodiac sign were we in when 
the younger driest period happened. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah. That takes a little bit of extra research, home. <laughs> What were the majority of the animals statues made of? Uh, you know, I don't know. Were they all cows? Probably Taurus. You know, were they lions? Probably Leo. I, I don't know. That is a great question, though. We could uh, <laughs> we could research uh, that. Look that up. Do some research on that. Yeah. Right. We could I, research that. It's one thing to uh, get it's into funny. astrology and understand what's happening in the current <laughs> movements, but to like look up ancient astrology, well, there's, there's something to that. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah beautiful i uh that, that deserves I that deserves further reading i outlined it all in some notes and uh if i can find those notes uh because i did i kind of listed all of the different eras according to zodiac in like a 2500 year cycle which isn't exactly right but nobody apparently knows how long those cycles are so i just kind of guessed at that and uh, I'll I'll figure it out one day. I can't find it right now. But uh, cool. interesting if we could if you could figure that figure that out, that'd be kind of cool. It would be interesting yeah, if it happened in the age of Leo. Though. You know what I mean? That would be cool. I mean, what we're what we're told and what we've figured. Have. So, is that every 72 years it moves one degree right so if there's 30 degrees in a sign then it's supposed to be 2160 years if that is actually what it is you know what i mean and not just created later and told us that's what it is yeah and and um how are the stars being measured that's my other question because the constellations are not each 30 degrees the signs are but the constellations are not for example aries is a woman this big and virgo's like this fucking bigs <laughs> so <laughs> yeah i did uh, i have some 20, i have some questions about that i did 2800 years as a cycle is that is that bad is that kind of accurate or not it's different from the number that I got from the math, but again, how how is the cycle being measured, right? Where does start and end, mm -hmm. like what constitutes beginning and ending, right? Yeah, I measured it from so. 180 to 2800 AD, and then I started going backwards from 1 BC to 2800 BC, and Leo falls at uh, 11,200 BC to 14,000. And then Cancer would be 8400 uh, BC to 11,200 BC, which would be the time period of the Younger, Dry uh, younger Dryas. So Leo would have happened before the fall if the fall was in Cancer. Interesting. Before the fall, the catastrophe. Cats. I'm telling you, there's something. To <laughs> he's running. He's running connected. with it. He's running with it. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll, well you know about out. toxoplasmosis, right? Oh. Uh, you know, you uh, don't know about toxoplasmosis. Cat, cat it's the parasite. Right? That, it's the parasite that cats carry. 
So cats carry a parasite. It's called toxoplasmosis. It's a worm. And um, if you are infected with toxoplasmosis, your ability to assess risk kind of goes down. You become reckless. And when mice get infected with toxoplasmosis, they become less afraid of the cat. So then the cat, it's easier prey for the cat, essentially. Hmm. Good times. (laughs) Interesting. Yep. I think I heard of that before. We used to have to we had to do deworm my cat. Mm. Um, I yeah. guess it was that. So they like gave him a drug. They they gave him a shot, and then like he 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 pooped stuff. It was kind of gross. He pooped stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. 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 yeah, I love that cat. I love. I know cats are full. Cats are full of chaos. And I think I definitely think there's a spiritual primordial element to them. But I freaking love mm-hmm. cats. Yeah. What is when your cat's I die, name, to, Adam? When I die and go to heaven, there's going to be a bunch of damn cats all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> what was your cat's name? Uh, Oliver. Oliver. Yeah. That's cute. I gave him my middle Ollie? name. But yeah. Oh, Ollie. that's your middle yeah, name? Yeah. Oh, cool. Cool, man. I am... Kaylee, your stomach's growling again. <laughs> That's the track set. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kaylee, where are you at? I know they're on the West Coast. Where are you at? Um, I'm in Alberta, Canada. Oh, okay. So mount, mountain time. Okay, wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. That's why you hear trucks because it's like rural Alberta and every boy has a truck around here. And it's just, and I say boys, I'm very deliberate in that word choice. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, what, what was the name of that conference again, Adam? And yeah, what pl- were the dates? Plug it for one it? more time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the Edgar Casey Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Ancient Mysteries Conference. And what are the dates? Uh, the dates are October the sixth to the sixth, seventh to the ninth. Yep. Excellent, man. Oh, so it's like a a whole weekend. It's a whole weekend. Yep. So kids are getting off of school Thursday and Friday. I took off. Um, I present on Saturday, but we're going to enjoy the whole kit and cabango. Nice. Are you, cool. Are kids into that or? What do you say? Matter. Are your kids into learning? <laughs> no, hell no. They, they hate. I, I drag them. I can't <laughs> them to every, I drag them to every man on the East Coast. There's even an article I have where the picture in it and they yeah. look freaking miserable. They, hate it. they utterly hate it. One day they might appreciate it. They're going. I hope. Yeah, they're, they're, they're only five and nine years old. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, they they hate that stuff. I'm, but there'll be some. I'm hoping there'll be some like other activities and stuff they can do in Virginia Beach. So yeah, cool. Nice, nice. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm well, looking forward you, to Adam. that. Hopefully, we're gonna catch some. On the subject nope. of Libra, bef- before we sign off, Adam, are you still with the mother of your children? Oh uh, yes. And she and she's into that stuff, or at uh, least supportive. Uh, no. Not really. She, her actual, her sign is a Leo, and I'm a Capricorn, which is really funny. That, <laughs> but, um, but uh, she, she's very supportive. Uh, no. not, neither my wife or my kids are really into it. So I'm hoping my kids in the future will, will be kind of into it. That's so funny. Uh, I'm, I'm glad she's at least supportive. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. So I just don't mind me. I'm just prying. <laughs> no, she, she's like, she's like, this is, this is, this is dumb. But uh, I, I love you anyway. So yeah. Oh, that's wow. true love right there. There you have yes. it, folks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Beautiful. Go figure. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> I love it. It also depends mm-hmm. on the mound. I'm taking my kids to some of the mounds, and like Dan said, they were just like clumps of dirt. And then other mounds are actually really imp- like the Great Creek Mound are actually really impressive. So they're more impressed by the by the larger mounds. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, Dad, it's just some fucking dirt. And you're like, come on, it's sacred dirt. <laughs> Without saying the F word, but yeah, it's basically I'm like, I'm like, guys, you guys, it's a pyramid. They're like, this isn't a freaking pyramid. This is just clumps of dirt. So yeah. Go figure. That's funny. That's funny. All right. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for joining us tonight. And my pleasure. Katie. Great talking to you guys. Yeah, and you nice to meet you, Adam. Yep. Best place you can find me right now. Um, the social media that I do have, you can find me at Kaylee Bracana. So I'm on Minds, Gab, and Telegram under that name. I have a YouTube channel, and every Monday I do a live stream show called Moonday Tarot. You should come check it out and hang out. Absolutely. Right, check excellent. it out, y'all. And Adam, Adam, you can find on Instagram too, Adam Stokes. Uh, if you want to go say hi to him or check out some of his photos. And um, and also Moon Mysteries with Gator and Kaylee. When are you guys doing the next one? Yep. Next uh, episode will be dropped pretty quick here. We're just figuring out artwork. And uh, we have another interview lined up actually for the end of next week that I'm really excited about. Excellent. So, yeah, if you have any really fun moon stories or uh you know a thread that we should we should research or an author that you'd like us to reach out to let us know because that is what we're doing investigating the mysteries of the moon anything and all thing lunar so even including lunar deities uh lunar uh lunar folklore lunar songs lunar poetry anything moon slide it on through right yes it's it's fun and um we're we're always looking for more so there's so much and we're trying to we're trying to give more credit to the moon landing than the discrediting of it but you know we'll we'll figure it out sooner sooner or later we'll we'll have some more juice for everybody and uh thanks dan for that because i i honestly wasn't going to mention that kind of forgot about it a little bit because we had so much fun chatting and one more question for adam adam what do you? What is the moon? Is it cheese? Yeah, is the moon cheese? Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I'll tell you exactly what I think the moon is. Awesome! You should okay. come on an episode of Moon Mysteries. A derelict spaceship that landed and got into orbit uh, thousands of years ago. If you look in Greek mythology, look look at the earliest Indian records uh, in Hindu Bobos. records and Greek and uh, Greek records. There's no mention of the moon, preserving a race memory at a time when the moon did not exist. So where did that moon come from? So um, that's just what you said. I like that too because I, I I think that the moon was put here in order to put our axis spin on, yes. and to take us out of the golden uh, the golden age, basically. Yeah, I think it was deliberately put here to to do something to us as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow, interesting. I like it. Beautiful. Cool. Is that in the Mormon Bible, Adam? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's my thoughts. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. That's uh, cool. Well, awesome. Is there is there any interesting stuff in, in, in Mormonism about the moon, though? Is there anything, like, they say about that or 
Moon is, is there any worship of the moon or anything not like that? Not really. There's the, the, um, it just, uh, in the Pearl of Great Price, one of the Mormon scriptures, it says that uh, God created two lights, the greater and lesser light, which is just like the Bible, but then it specifies that one of the lights is the moon. Um, here's a random question for you. Um, the ceremonies, like the rituals, um, are how are those timed? Are they timed with like the seasonal ingresses, like how the Christian church has got things set up right now, where they basically stole pagan holidays and they're just hopping on that? <laughs> or, or, or any of the celebrations based on uh, lun lunation cycles? In Mormonism? Yeah. Um, that's a good question. Um, there's a lot of Joseph Smith was big time into astrology and the planets. In fact, I'm not wearing it now, but I usually wear it 95% of the time. I have a Jupiter talisman, which Joseph Smith was wearing when he was killed. It's, it's not the talisman, it's just a replica of it. Because um, I, I was like, what? I would sell that for money and retire. But, um, <laughs> any, but um, it actually has the celestial alignments and uh, it has Jupiter, the planet Jupiter. And Joseph Smith tied this into uh, Zeus whom he thought was synonymous with the god of Mormonism. He doesn't explicitly say that, but it's really heavily implied. Interesting. Uh, so uh, very, uh, yeah, very, uh, very interesting stuff there. Cool. Thank you for answering. Yeah, I'd be interested to know. And a That's lot cool. of the rituals, a lot of the uh, Mormon rituals are very similar to kind of Masonic rituals. And there's a there's kind of a astrological uh, alignment with those as well. So, so yes. Hmm. I'm going to have more questions next time. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Excellent, guys. Well, thank Thank you. Thank you all. Uh, thank you, Fire Tribe. Have a beautiful night wherever you are. And wake up. Wake up. Yeah, wake up. And don't forget to let us know how you like the RFTA news segments on Telegram or an email. Enjoy the interview with David Matheson. Hello, Fire Tribe. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Danny Minaki Dan. I am the homie Romy. Hello, hello, hello. AKA Fantastic. the homie Gator. That's right. Yes, you can call me Gator. You can call me... <laughs> Uh, you can call me late for dinner. It's okay. I'm fine with that. Uh, today on the show, we have returning guest, David Matheson, Starmouth World. How you doing, David? I'm great. Dan and Romy, great to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, our Fantastic. pleasure. Yes. Yeah, your, uh, your episode when... You know, it was in the like about almost a year ago, almost uh, nine months ago, something, something in that in that wheelhouse, and it your episode, people absolutely loved it. It was just out of nowhere, a bunch of brand new listeners came, and um, <clears throat> it was it was really great. So it is always, always, always <laughs> a blessing. A true blessing, sir. So, <laughs> um, yeah, your and your work is so amazing. Honestly, uh, it's it's really good. It's uh, deep, 
introspective and it gives you know gives people so much to chew on so much to look at with the the great perspectives and and the deep research and yeah so i i'm excited um you know we're we're in the uh ancient egyptian and ancient sumerian month and so gonna try to 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 ring in some of those concepts and paradigms into this tonight's conversation all right well thanks uh, for those kind words and you know, I appreciate the opportunity to get my message out. I'm doing this research now for 13 plus years, and uh, I really believe that alternative media, whatever we want to call it, non-mainstream media, non-corporate media is very important in the world today. It's quite clear that we are being actively lied to by the corporate media. There's just no way you can look at what's going on out in the world and not realize that. So these opportunities that we have that have kind of bubbled up from the, you know, from the people out there, just mm -hmm. using the tools that we have available, I believe are really important to, you know, spreading information that maybe would otherwise be you know, excluded or marginalized. So anyway, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Thanks to everybody who's tuning in. And I'm looking forward to a, to a great conversation. You didn't tell me it was Sumer and Mesopotamia. I've got some uh, Greek myths to show and oh. related to show you. But, you know, look, the, the, the fact is I've been um, talking about the myths of the world. For those who aren't familiar with my work, the, some yeah, juice. I'll, some yeah, I'll just give you a, a brief couple sentences. This is the ancient wisdom that is given to every culture around the globe that is it's mysterious where it came from because it's already present in the most ancient myths that we have written down, which includes the text from Sumer and Babylon, Sumer being older texts, the Gilgamesh epic in Sumerian, they called him Bilgamesh with a B instead of a G. The Bilgamesh epic, the Inanna texts, talking about the goddess Inanna going down into the underworld, she's a Sumerian goddess. Those stories, which are written down on clay tablets, which were discovered in the 1800s, and like ancient Egyptian, the cuneiform texts had to be deciphered. And it was a really intriguing, adventurous story, the deciphering of cuneiform, just like the deciphering of the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, is very intriguing, that whole story of like the three basically pretty young scholars in their 20s and 30s that were working on the cuneiform texts. When those texts were discovered and translated, it rocked the world because there were so many parallels with the stories in the Bible that it shocked people. And so these very, very ancient tablets are already exhibiting in their stories this pattern of celestial metaphor that forms the foundation for 
myths and sacred stories of virtually every culture on the planet, including the Bible. So the stories of the Bible are not necessarily copies of Sumerian or Mesopotamian stories. That's one way that it's kind of interpreted, oh, these parallels. It must be that the Bible borrows somehow. It's not necessarily that there's borrowing going on because these patterns are already present in the earliest texts of Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, already present in the earliest texts of ancient Egypt, already present in the Vedas of ancient India, very ancient traditions preserved in Sanskrit, already present in the myths of ancient China, another ancient civilization, already present in the myths of the ancient Greeks, which, you know, classical Greece was more recent, but there are traditions, including some that I'm referring to in some of the slides that I prepared. We can talk about Mesopotamia and Egypt if you want, but I prepared some visuals. It, it really doesn't matter what we talk about because what I am showing is that the world's ancient myths, and so far I've just mentioned Asia, Mesopotamia, Greece, you know, parts of Europe, Egypt, Northern Africa, around the Mediterranean, but cultures of Africa, different cultures of Africa going further down into the further south into Africa, cultures of Australia, their sacred stories, cultures of the Americas, cultures of the Pacific, the Norse myths, all these different traditions that are given and preserved in these different cultures around the world show clear signs of being A, based on celestial metaphor, and B, based on the same system, which is astonishing, surprising, and difficult, well, really impossible to explain under the conventional paradigm, because the conventional paradigm says, no, there's no connection between the stories of ancient Mesopotamia or ancient Greece and the stories of the Maya in Central America, or the stories of the cultures of the Pacific, like the Maui stories, and yet they can be shown to be based on the same system. So there's a, I wasn't super short, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm showing. And by the way, the stories of the Bible from start to finish, what we call the Bible are part of the same tradition. They are based on celestial metaphor. So yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about. So you can see it in any culture. And then once you start seeing the proofs, you can go look at the myths of other cultures and see that this system is operating. Yeah, man. I, I, I like the way you said that because, yeah, you can see like from the beginning of each culture, they already had like these myths kind of cemented into their uh, cultural understandings. So it's like, how did they already know about these if their culture was just getting started? Do you think do you think that there was a possibility that they could have all got them from one source place beforehand or these were traditions passed down maybe before the cataclysm that happened and then uh you know these kind of traditions were just re-carried out 
uh, throughout time. And, you know, maybe at one point in the past, we were all connected a lot more. Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. And I know there's no there's no good answer. The answer is, yeah, the answer (laughs) is if there was such a tremendous cataclysm, there's just abundant evidence in the geology of our earth when you're walking around in the national parks here in north america or when you go visit different parts of the world there is abundant evidence that we've had a major cataclysm or catastrophe that is written in the geology you know the grand canyon does not make sense from a very slow uniformitarian process the way it's taught you know if you go up to a park ranger and ask how did this get here they'll say well it was millions of years the river slowly carved (laughs) this miles wide thing and if you look on a map you'll see it carves it right through a massive mountain basically the this kaibab plateau this huge uplift rivers don't just wander up to a giant mountain and then proceed to carve a miles wide canyon through it they would just go around it or they don't flow uphill and then carve that thing down and they don't carve miles wide and all that dirt has to go somewhere these are incredible problems it is clearly catastrophic if you go to places like zion canyon and those slot canyons Mm. where we go those are catastrophic i was just you know before you got on romy dan was saying oh it looks like you're doing some adventures i was just up at pinnacles in california which is nice one of the most recently you know created into a national park but it's you know it's a place i used to go as a my dad took me there when i was eight nine or ten years old it's been a you know a state park but uh dendritic scarring too around some of these places which is really highly curious about like you know if there's electrical scarring or some sort of you know high heat blast now that's now that is some really interesting digs right there uh we we just released an episode today um with this lady tess clark and she studies a lot of the um the history of like the astronomical phenomena throughout history and how they might be interpreted in uh, historical text. And with your work, looking at the stars and looking at those types of astrotheological points of views, what, um, what, and then talking about what we're talking about, like fast cataclysmic things, do, I, do, do have you come across any major asteroidal impacts in the stories or any sort of common impacts or anything like that? Well, you know, so there's a large kind of school of thought that not necessarily the mainstream school of thought, but there's kind of a large alternative body of researchers who interpret a lot of the myths based on cataclysms. Now, there's clearly trauma depicted in the myths like there's all kinds of just murders and rapes and horrific things in the myths and some researchers you know you're mentioning electric scarring there's the whole electric universe theory which i'm not against 
the possibility that there are powerful electromagnetic cataclysmic type forces at work in our solar system, in our universe, on our planet. There's clearly plasma, you know, um, plasma is a powerful force that is uh, capable of, of doing catastrophic things. But I do not interpret the myths through that lens. I see that as a, as a literalistic, you know, when I first started this, I was taking the Bible literally. So when I first started researching the geology that I've just been talking about, I was looking at it in the context of a biblical flood. Do I still believe that the biblical flood is literal today as described in the Bible? No, I don't. Okay, it's very clear to me that the biblical flood story is celestial metaphor. Now, does that mean that there was no catastrophic flood, potentially even a massive scale mega flood that's even bigger than one continent, maybe even a global flood? Just because the Bible is not literal, does that mean that there never was a literal flood? No. See, look, you can go to Monterey. I'm sticking with some California. Yeah. We're all here in California. California's got some amazing, varied geology. We've got deserts. We've got mountains with snow. We've got oceanic trenches. The Monterey Trench is a subterranean or a subsea canyon that is subsurface canyon that is carved out like a Grand Canyon off the coast of Monterey. Now, how, how do, big is this? Oh, it's massive. It's it's um, just go on Google. Just go on Google Maps. Not even Google Earth. You can see it on Google Earth too. But just go on Google Maps and and turn on satellite and look off the coast of Monterey, and you'll see this enormous canyon going down from the center of Monterey wow. into the ocean. And there's big, wow. huge canyons off the coast down here in the central coast where Dan and I live, snaking down like gigantic, you know, grand canyons going down under the water, down the, the shelf, you know, the subsea shelf. How did those get there? I'm citing this evidence that's the work of Dr. Walt Brown, whose work I did a lot of analysis on in my first book, who is arguing for a catastrophic flood, and he's arguing from a biblical, mostly literalistic perspective, but the evidence that he's showing is overwhelmingly catastrophic evidence. Now, I no longer believe you can use, uh, to tie it back to your question, the myths to say, oh, this must be what the Bible is talking about, because the Bible and other flood myths are clearly celestial. In other words, they're based on the constellations. They're not, they're not to be used for literal, they're not talking about literal history, but that doesn't mean that we didn't have a flood. I don't know if this is making yeah. sense the way I'm explaining this. You, you, you don't have to say, oh, the myths must be about a flood because we had a flood. 
okay? I argue that the myths are actually about something else, that they're esoteric, that they're about trauma. They're trying to tell you about your own internal landscape. You know, the landscape of California is fascinating, but the landscape that's going on inside my head and your head and Dan's head is the landscape that we have to deal with as we're going through our life. And we're like, why did I do that? Why did I react that way? Why am I sabotaging myself with the things that I do? Why am I exhibiting these addictions? Why am I unable to change the way I you know, do things? Why am I in a battle scenario, which in the ancient times, they were more talking about going to battle than sports, but why am I in a sports situation why did I miss that clutch shot at the last second instead of making it? Or why did I, how can I make it? How can I make that last second shot? Whether it's in hockey, basketball, lacrosse, whatever. How do I live up to my full potential? That's what the myths, I'm convinced, are largely focused on. Not giving us a history lesson about this happened or this happened. They are talking about you and me as opposed to talking about geology and landscape. Not to say that geology and landscape isn't supremely important. And yes, clearly the earth has experienced trauma, which means more than likely human history has experienced trauma because the whole reason I brought this up, I kind of took us off on a big, interesting tangent you said, where did this come from? Could this all have been a predecessor civilization? Dan, you were, you were asking about that. Yeah. And I said, well, there's clearly been a catastrophe. And, you know, Graham Hancock says, and it's a great quotation, and I love this quotation, humanity, men and women, we're a species with amnesia. And I totally agree with that. And I add, it wouldn't be and I'm sure Graham would agree with me, it wouldn't be wrong to say we're a species with trauma-induced amnesia. And some of that trauma may have been a catastrophe. Trauma-induced amnesia. And so we've had, as a humanity, a trauma that separates us from what came before. The source of these myths probably was before some catastrophe, because then when the first quote-unquote, first civilizations, first ones that we know of pop up, they all have this system in place. They didn't need to, like, go spread it around. The Egyptians didn't need to get it from the Mesopotamians, and the Bible stories didn't necessarily need to get it from the Egyptians or the Mesopotamians. It's like the pieces have been preserved in all these different cultures around the world and remembered in different ways with different emphases you know, some cultures emphasize this part of the myths or th- this part of the story. It's like a giant jigsaw puzzle that's been, it used to be put together. It got scattered around and now the pieces are scattered around the globe, but every culture has this system. And so the most likely scenario I would agree is that there was some predecessor before some cataclysm, there was some culture or cultures that were sharing this system around the world. And then some cataclysm came about that caused people to have to go underground or, you know, really 
live in fear and maybe the earth was radioactive because of solar ejections, who knows, but they were isolated and separated from each other. And then when they all started popping up out of the you know, centuries of just surviving, they kept these pieces and remembered them in different, imperfectly maybe, it may be that the ancient civilizations didn't really remember all of the system, but they probably remember more than what we've got now. <laughs> those ancient Egyptians and those ancient Mesopotamians and the ancient Greeks and the Norse and the ancient China, ancient Japan, ancient India, the Maya, etc. How's that? So, yeah, I'm totally interested in ca catastrophes, but I don't argue that oh these myths are about the catastrophes now they use they use that as a metaphor mm -hmm. and you know they use metaphors of things that they really saw you know there's sex in the myths there's lots of sex in the myths there's um hunting there's uh you know jealousies and family feuds well those are all things that we have in humanity so yeah they use metaphors and so they're floods yeah, they use those things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the myths are talking about a literal flood that we can then go to the myths and say, oh, yeah, this proves, oh, yeah, the flood must have been like this. I think it's two different things. Hmm. A flood and the myths that are esoteric, using the flood as a metaphor. Is there, so can you, uh, can, is there a good example that you like to give for? this kind of uh this kind of brief like a uh can you give us a sample of a myth or a story that might be alluding to some of these celestial uh understandings that you talk about yeah so um you know and i'll pull up some slides here in a little bit but since we're on a topic that i wasn't necessarily you know preparing the visuals on i'll just kind of describe the bible flood is a, a horrifying you know it's terrifying i've just um published a couple of different online courses so in addition to writing about 10 books exploring this evidence and publishing a bunch of videos and blog posts over the years i've now started making online courses which give it's an it's it's a little it's a little more visual than a book, even though I put lots of pictures in my books, I can have some animation, I can have some visuals, a book can present a lot more information than a video, you know, and it would take probably 100 hours of video to, to present everything that's in one 500 page book, but a video, you know, so there's, there's strengths and weaknesses to each one, but the videos, you can really kind of show some animation, you can have the star charts, you know, you can circle things as people are watching. So I've now got four online courses, two of which are kind of foundational, trying to describe the whole system. Those are Celestial Mechanics and the Myths, and then Recovering Our Deeper Self. And then the most recent two are Celestial Bible Tour, Part 1, and Celestial Bible Tour, Part 2. And part one has the flood, and I examine the flood in there. And I go from basically Adam and Eve all the way up through the children of Israel. And then part two, I go from nice. Joseph and his brothers, you know, 
his brothers sell Joseph down to Egypt into slavery in Egypt. And then Joseph becomes like the right-hand man to Pharaoh and all these other things happen. And then I go into the Moses story and the Exodus and all the way up through David and Solomon, the judges, people like Samson. So that's what's uh, Celestial Bible Tours 1 and 2. So Celestial Bible Tour 1, I do go into the flood and I talk about this is a horrifying myth. This is like God decides to destroy everything in whose nostrils was the breath of life. We're going we're gonna to fill your nostrils up with water and drown you. Ooh, it's terrifying. And in Mesopotamian myth, there is an equally terrifying flood that's described. And it's like, it's even, it's even in some ways more horrifying than the biblical flood because, you know, the gods are coming. You can almost hear the drums of the, you know, the angry gods bringing the storm clouds across the earth and just yeah it's it's terrifying and the and the parallels are very clear between the mesopotamian myths and the biblical flood account there's a hint of well it's because men and women were being too loud and noisy and disturbing the gods in the mesopotamian myths they were they were being too fruitful and multiplying and, 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 and keeping the gods awake. And the gods were like, we need to put an end to these annoying men and women down there making so much noise. And, they, and in the biblical account, it's not as clear why there's a flood other than that men and women's inclinations were only evil all the time. And then there's that passage about the sons of men took the daughters of women but it's, it really just segues right into a flood, and it's terrifying. But in both cases, you've got this, like a powerful wind is coming, and God opens up the floodgates of heaven. And you can see in the constellations themselves, there is a constellation that is almost always associated with a wind, a powerful wind. There, North wind. The, the storm... Yeah, the North Wind. That's right. It's it is the constellation Hercules. So I show this mm. in my online course. And the constellation Hercules looks like a whirlwind in some ways of outlining Hercules. So in the Bible, the God of the Bible, he is a storm god. He's a wind god. He comes to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day after they've eaten the fruit. The, the text of Genesis says, in the cool of the day. And then there's a footnote that says, well, the actual term is not the cool of the day. It's the wind of the day. And God appears in the wind of the day to Adam and Eve and says, why are you hiding from me? Why, who told you you were naked? It's a traumatic scene. And in the, in the flood, it's the wind. God causes a wind to make the flood go away. And in the crossing of the Red Sea, God parts the Red Sea by the wind, by the breath of his nostrils. It says it right in the text. So there are clear textual references to specific constellations that are associated with a wind. So mm. the God of the Bible is a storm God, is, just like, is it, just like is Zeus any... is. Is there any cross correlation between uh, 
the God of the Bible and Boreas at all, do you think? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Is that Boreas, a stretch? Boreas is the north wind that snatches up. Yeah, we talked about, so actually, um, that's a good segue into some of the slides that I did prepare. Yeah. I don't show Boreas, but in the last time we talked about in Socrates' dialogue, well, it's really Plato's dialogue with his character Socrates talking to his character Phaedrus. Phaedrus says, hey, Socrates, and we talked about this in the, the last <laughs> time I was on your channel, isn't this where Boreas, the north wind, snatched up that maiden and carried her away? And Socrates says, you know, Phaedrus, some scholars who just have too much time on their hands evidently <laughs> like to sit around and try and figure out exactly where on the ground this myth took place. But I can't really be troubled with that. And what I argue Plato is really saying is, let me give you a clue. It's not literal. Those people who are trying to tell you, oh, it happened in this river, they're wrong because it's not a river on earth. It's, it's about something else. And then Socrates says, I can't do what the oracle at Delphi tells me to do if I waste my, too much time on that kind of worthless Mm -hmm. time-wasting speculation. You, you're, looking at it, you're looking at the exoteric, not reading between the lines socrates kind of yeah. thing <laughs> socrates is correcting phaedrus and saying it's not exoteric it's not literal history it's esoteric and what's it about he's hinting what's it about the way he corrects phaedrus he says really what we should be focusing on is what the oracle at delphi tells us to focus on and then he says know thyself so that's actually let me let me just take the opportunity to share my yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah you, share, uh, share the slides, you gotta, man. You got to um, enable it. So as we're doing that, can I ask a question yeah, go uh, for it. as we transition? So there is, is, it's a fun question that just came up to my head. Is there any Plato to Pluto? Like, I know the vowels are sometimes interchangeable and his, you know, information that Plato received from his, you know, his, his family who had, you know, relationships with, um, specific pharaohs and, and old Egyptian, uh, bloodlines. I'm wondering if that, you know, that's a constellation story also. You know, it's a, it's an interesting question. I'm not, really qualified to answer if there's a connection between Plato and Pluto. <laughs> it's a little bit of a stretch. I know. I... <laughs> <laughs> Which is a nice way of saying, no, Romy, you're totally... I... No, no I, I don't know. Maybe so. You know, do some research and check it out. That's yeah, not, I'm gonna a, have to. not a connection that's occurred to me to, to really pursue. And really, I'm looking more at the, like the ancient myths that are preserved from mm -hmm. uh, before Plato. But still... This dialogue with Socrates is very important because it's an indication of what at least the person calling himself Plato or herself, maybe it was written by a woman. There you go. You know, these names that are taken are often not real names. names. Like yeah. Paul in the Bible, Paul, whose name originally was Saul, I'm not the first to suggest that those are really 
coded names. Mm -hmm. Gerald Massey, who lived in the late 1800s and was an mm -hmm. Egyptologist, kind of a self-taught early Egyptologist. And he's, an, he's an OG in the scene. He is. He, he really made some fantastic nice. insights. Yes, I would, I would agree with that. And even though, you know, Gerald Massey says Paul was an esoteric Gnostic teacher. He was not a literalist the way he's made out to be. Mm -hmm. And he started off with a name that was Saul, which if you just think about the word solar or... Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds soul, like soul, right? Sun God type of a name. And then he has his name changed to Paul. And Gerald Massey says, that's like Apollo. And there's even, oh. there's even a book of the Bible that's called Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, which for centuries, mm -hmm. theologians would say, oh yeah, this is by Paul. And now modern scholars who look at the style say, no, the, the text itself has clear signs, you know, choice of vocabulary, sentence structure, syntax. This is clearly by a different writer. I don't think this is the same writer as the one who wrote the letters attributed to Paul. We're going to say that this is probably that figure that Paul mentions a lot, Apollos, you know, another Mm -hmm. Another another early, supposed early Christian, Apollos, must have written Hebrews. Well, so Paul and Saul are probably kind of allegorical names. It's like there's not necessarily a literal figure running around whose name was Saul who changed <laughs> his name to Paul. It's like these are wisdom texts. Well, and then funny enough, like then you look at where we're at in modernity and you see people named Paul. Uh, you know, and then taking things like that quite literally, um, when, you know, it could have very well been an initiatory level name, uh, or a pseudonym of sorts to, you know, have some sort of, uh, esoteric meaning behind it. Now your, your name itself, I, I'm curious before, okay, sorry, one last question before we go into it. So your name, you know, you have David, right. Which is a yeah. pretty, uh, pretty pronounced name in, in history, but also Matheson, the son of Matthew, right. Yeah. Um, have you looked at, have you looked into your name and much? And like, do you have a, also maybe a, a very pronounced <laughs> middle name too, or what? Well, I use my, I use my full name on my books because there are Matheson is actually a pretty common name in Norway. It's not that common in, uh, the United mm. States as much as, as it is in Norway, but you know, in the Nordic cultures up until really the 1700s, people took last names based on their father, their father's first name. Mm -hmm. So if you were the son of Severin, if your father's name was Severin, you could be Severin's son if you were a boy and Severin's daughter if you were a girl. So the last names would change every generation. But, um, you know, it is interesting. Matthew is obviously one of the gospel writers. Um, and yeah, my middle name Warner is English. So I use all three of them. Um, and David, of course, is in the Bible, but that is mm -hmm. actually linguistically goes all the way back to the Egyptian god Toth or Jehudi. Hmm. Oh, how's that connection? Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I, haven't, I haven't gone deep on that at all. Can you give us a little uh, a, a context on that? Well, Daoud is the Arabic kind of version of it. Daoud, the, the U is softer than the V, like David. 
could be Daoud, like the name Daoud. So, uh, or in Egyptian, Toth or Tot, or, you know, we don't know how the Egyptians pronounced. Yeah, yeah. Because right. they left out vowels. So, <laughs> and they were so scholar- deep on their Kundalini, who knows how their throat <laughs> chakras are really working? I mean, they, they probably pronounce things very differently. They only sang to each other, Romy, in, in uh, like <laughs> Tuvan throat singing as they were talking at all times. But, uh, you know, modern scholars of Egyptian, in all seriousness, believe that the name that we typically render taught was Jehuti or Tahuti, something like more like that. So that mm. became David in the Bible. And I'm not wow. I'm not the first one to suggest that. It's the same constellation that plays the god Tot or Jehuti, the messenger of the gods, or the, the scribe, as plays David, the sweet Mercury. singer of Israel. That's right. David is always playing a harp. You know, that mm-hmm. it can be so I'm the one who shows the the connections to the constellation. So anyway, I've written a book that goes nice. into the Egyptian myths and into the Mesopotamian myths. You and, pull... Yeah, go ahead. You, I was going to say, you're, you're playing out your name archetype. It's funny because the more I'm, I love names, I think name history, name archetypes are a very interesting thing because the more that we study history and the more that we research, we find that people somehow fulfill a role that their name almost was kind of blueprinted out to be. Like it's really honestly quite intriguing and interesting and you just brought that up that you do kind of bring that that constellation that correlation between your name archetype and you know the path that you've chosen it's like how why did you choose this path i don't know what wishing like it's interesting it is it's super interesting and you know people you you were talking about people whose name is paul and look i believe that the myths are actually all about you me every listener, you, that's what the Mm -hmm. myths are about. They are, you are what the myths are trying to get this message to you to live up to this potential that you have, this divine, you have a higher self. And it's, we, we even have a, um, a defense mechanism that wants to poo-poo that. Like when someone starts to talk about higher self, there's a part of us, a defense mechanism that immediately swoops in and says, ah, that, you know, don't start talking that new age BS, frou-frou, um, yeah. higher self stuff yeah. to me because we've been separated from who we really are and we don't even know it. We don't even know it. And that's what the myths are trying to show hey, you've been traumatized or separated from who you are so deeply that you don't even realize that it's happened to you. So therefore, I need to portray it to you in the myths. And these myths are about you. And so when you say, I'm, I'm segueing off of your great insight that you, you know, comment that you're making, Romy, about why do we have these names? everybody's named after celestial figures. I mean, mm. if your name is Anna, Anna means Inanna. annual cycle and oh. Inanna. That's right. But Inanna 
you know, annual means a ring, the ring of the year, the cycles, the heavenly cycles are in you. When you're breathing, you are in touch with the cycles of the universe. When your heart is beating, you're making a drum, just like the planets in the heavenly bodies out there are making a drum. They're making a cycle. They're making a rhythm. When, you know, a woman has her monthly cycle, she's in the rhythm of the heavens. You, when you're, you know, breathing in and breathing out, you're in the rhythms of the heavens. These stories are about you. And so you have a name that's a celestial name, whether it's Apollo or David or Daniel, Dan I-L, you know, these are celestial names to tell you something about who you are. And the myths are there to show you, hey, these are stories about you. You have a higher self. You have a divine self, or we could just call it a self. I like to call it your deeper self because it's been suppressed, but it's down there giving you information. And the more we can get in touch with ourselves, the more we can live up to our potential. So what led me to this? I don't know. But in hindsight, I look back and go, wow, this it's like I was into the stars. It's almost like I was on this path. I was being guided without even knowing it into these kinds of is because I was looking for it. Was I looking for it? I, I wasn't looking for it. Myself was looking for it anyway. This is a fascinating comment you made. This is super fascinating. Actually, I'd kind of like to stay on this a little bit if we could, if you don't mind, like maybe uh, give us uh, what my name, Dan, Daniel and Roman's name are celestially. Well, yeah, it's not, again, it's not my area of real expertise, but, but um, you know, Dan, of course, is, is one of the, names in the the children of israel right yeah l you know l is a name of god daniel daniel l is a name of the of one of the gods you know helios in greece ancient greece is a sun god helios Mm -hmm. and when we when we say hello to one another I'm not asserting this just as, you know, me, this is scholars have said this for centuries. Hello comes from Helios and mm. L is a form of Helios or Baal is a, it's the same God is that in the Bible is the God of the Bible is associated with the same constellation as the God Baal or Marduk in ancient Mesopotamia, as the god Zeus or Jove or Zeus Pater, Father Zeus, Jupiter in Greek myths. It's the same storm god, wind god, thunderbolt god, and it's the same god as Thor. And the ancients understood this. You know, I'm, I've got some slides that have some Greek myth stuff on them but when the ancient romans like tacitus there's this author named tacitus who wrote about the the german the germania he wrote a book about the germans and he said you know the german tribes they were basically tribes that the romans were fighting against you see it in the movie gladiator right at the beginning 
Maximus is up there with uh, the emperor um, Marcus Aurelius, and they're fighting against the the tribes of Germania. And Tacitus says, "Well, they primarily worship Mercury." Well, the Ger the Germans worship Mercury. What are we talking about? They're talking about Odin, who's a but the ancient Romans knew that was the same god as their Hermes or Mercury. And then they and then Tacitus says, but they primarily also, when they go into battle, worship Hercules, or they have a version of Hercules. Well, mm -hmm. Hercules is not the same god as Odin. Thor is associated with the constellation Hercules. He has a hammer that's a thunder hammer. Zeus has a lightning bolt that's a thunder lightning bolt. So anyway, L. That god, El, Ellis, Dan, Daniel, is associated with that, that same god that's associated with Hercules. And it's a thunder god. It's a, uh, and Daniel means, it means something to do with God, like the glory of God. I, I can look it up. I've got a, somewhere around here, I've got a 15, a 1500s um, copy of the Geneva Bible. And in the back, it's got oh, wow. like, it's got like the uh, every single name that has. Oh yeah, like, grab that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure which. I'm not sure which bookshelf. That's awesome. On, but it'll tell you oh. what Daniel means, or like Joshua. Joshua has Jaw in it. It's a different name. Yeah. I mean that means Jaw. Shua means saved. It means Jehovah or Jaw saved. Well, Jehovah is the linguistically the same name as Jove or mm -hmm. Yahweh. So anyway, and Roman, I mean, obviously it comes from the Romans. I, I, I know, but I, I was, you know, I've been wondering that too, because I, for a while, I didn't need to go any further than that. Mm -hmm. But then I was like, okay, well then where did the Romans come up with this name? Is it mm -hmm. really just the home of Rome or was Rome made afterwards? And I'm wondering if it has to make, have a connection with the Ram and Aries, because <clears throat> You know, rum, ram, rom, Romans, that, you know, the Rome itself. I'm, I don't know. I have zero idea. I haven't looked into it much. That's why I have zero idea. But I, the first thing I come to is ram. So, which is the Aries, which, which is the head. So, you know, I think that might be some celestial connection. But what is your opinion? Yeah. Well, first, I would say, like, get someone like Santos Spinacci on because that's, <laughs> where he really, he, he focuses on those kinds of things. I really stick to what I can prove from mm -hmm. the ancient myths and really like evidence from the text. I try and stick, that's my main line of focus, but you know, there is a myth about Romulus and Remus. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. twins, mm -hmm. twins mm -hmm. are in, in like the founding myth of Rome. They were, you know, suckled by a she-wolf and, um, those kinds of twinning patterns are found around the world, right? Which, like Gilgamesh and yeah. Enkidu, are twins, mm -hmm. and it has to do with, I would argue, our our lower nature. Like one twin is often mortal. For instance, mm -hmm. Castor and Pollux. One twin is mortal. One twin is divine. But often one twin is hairy as well. Like in Gilgamesh. And Kidu, who's a twin of Gilgamesh, is always described as being hairy. 
or in the Jacob and Esau. Those are famous twins in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. Jacob and Esau. Esau is described as hairy. And it's talking not about two different people. It's talking about you. You've got a physical, mortal aspect of who you are. That's hairy. You know, that's your body. And you've got a divine twin that you have access to, but that often like has to run away. Like Jacob has to go into hiding. He's, he's banished. <laughs> it's because we have suppressed and, and buried or driven away our higher self due to trauma. And that's why there's so much trauma in all these myths. So anyway, the Romulus and Remus story, the two twins, you know, end up being fighting with each other, just like in the Jacob and Esau story, or just like in the wrestling of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. And I interpret them as esoterically, that it's talking about you. It's not two different people. You've got inside of you multiple personalities, but you've got a higher self that can bring them all into harmony mm. and help you live up to your full potential. But otherwise, you're going to be fighting against yourself. I mean, self-sabotage or, oh, why did I do that? Oh, I, I can't believe I had that opportunity and I said that? Oh man, you know, why did I do that? Why did I, it's almost like I was, a part of me was deliberately sabotaging me. Well, that might actually be true because we, we have this struggle going on inside of us as well. That's what I think the twins of Romulus and Remus are actually mm -hmm. depicting. You know, I'm not an expert on names and you're right, uh, Romy, it may relate to Aries and the Ram. I, you know, I was, yeah, I'm curious because you brought up the Remus and Romulus, which is, you know, the, the one of the stories of the founding of Rome. Uh, and I, I can't remember what strange connection that story had to lycanthropy or uh, the, the werewolves, but like that, it did have something to do with it because we did a werewolf deep dive not too long ago um, from this awesome book written in 1860 from Sabid, Sabid Gould uh, called The Book of Werewolves. And then so I was I got super fascinated. I was like, okay, this shows up everywhere. Everywhere talks about werewolves, like this transformation. Dogs are by our side. We have this fear of wolves, all the things. And then, the you know, the moon association. So then uh, we're thinking with the ram and that story that you said, then I started thinking that, well, Cyrus was kind of connected to being considered uh, – a werewolf as well, or a lycanthropic type of qualities, because there was this town, and I'm going to butcher it completely, but um, you know, and he's one of the fathers in supposed stories uh, amongst. That's the other thing, man. Is there's all these different stories of who gave birth to who, and that has to be celestial, right? Yeah, I'm not an I'm not a werewolf, uh, you know, expert, but <laughs> but for sure, but for sure you could see some esoteric significance in that story. Like, uh, I got taken over by, you know, this mm. beast, bestial part of me. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I, I wasn't kinda... myself when I, that wasn't me when I was talking to you. Oh, yes, it was. I know that part of you. you know? Yeah, but you were glazed. It's, it's kind of like what you're saying with the, with the twins, though. It's the, the higher self and lower self and that lower hairy self and the higher smooth self. It's kind of the same thing with uh the werewolf story it's it's you know it's that lower self that's hairy right 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I haven't really looked at where, you know, like I said, I, I try and stick to the really ancient myths, but there is a, an ancient book that is a very important source that I've cited many times. And if you haven't read it, check it out because it does have some werewolf stuff going on in it. And it's definitely esoteric and it's called the golden ass, the golden ass. It's, oh. it's by an ancient writer named Apuleius, mm -hmm. Lucius Apuleius. Uh, I think it was his full name. He was a Roman and it was written, I want to say it's like first century uh, AD, maybe it was first century BC. I'm not positive, but I think it was AD. I think it was first or second century AD. But anyway, it's a rollicking tale. It is mm -hmm. definitely esoteric. The main character gets turned into an ass, a donkey, in the story, and he has to get restored to his former self, which doesn't happen until the goddess Isis restores him. So this is mm -hmm. an esoteric, it's like in our lower Shrek. self, we're, we're bestial. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting, and there's some, <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some like fairy tale <laughs> aspects to it, um, but there's some terrifying werewolf stuff in there. There's some terrifying, there's some, it's it's got some freaky stuff in it. It's it was actually called metamorphosis because there's all kinds of like people turning mm. into different things in the story. Uh -huh. Yeah, but it, it was later also called the golden tale of the ass, like you know this this mm -hmm. golden story of the guy who gets turned into an ass, but then it gets just shortened to the golden ass, and it's very esoteric and it's got some important mythical. Uh, uh, isn't in a donkey it. isn't a donkey kind of like it's a hybrid right and it can't reproduce well if a, I'm mule. Not a mule is a oh mule. a mule sorry that's a mule and and a bird a mule and a bird is a donkey and a horse mix okay i just wanted to make sure that this wasn't pulling at some homunculus things of some strange like because <laughs> oh, the, the the golden ass has come up across like i haven't got my hands on it but i have heard about it uh and in, in passing a couple times and now this is again so i i'm, I'm definitely going to try to yeah check uh, it out i to, like the, to do I, it because i, I love esoteric works man I like the translation by, I think it's Jack Lindsay. It's Jack, I want to say Jack Lindsay from the 60s. That's the one that I was introduced to. Actually, I had a fantastic Latin teacher in seventh grade, and he read some passages oh, nice. from the Golden Ass, like where these um, witches split the throat of this guy and put a sponge, take out his heart and put a sponge in. <laughs> and uh it's it's terrifying and he read that part to us and we were all like <laughs> you know it's so scary um and then later i got to read it again i in between junior year and senior year of high school i went to harvard summer school and i audited a class in latin and in that latin class we looked at the golden ass as well it's a it's an amazing story, wow. but, um, but I'm not an expert on werewolves. I mean, let me, <laughs> let me segue into, yeah, let me let's segue get into, into the slides and try yeah. and like show th these are fascinating. And, and I love, you know, how you, you guys are able to take it in these interesting directions and, and it is all related. I'm maybe not as equipped to speculate on name origins, although I could, I could, you know, you did a great job. I mean, could, with your with that. your big vast yeah. research, 
you're able to pull at strings, you know, and make make a lot of really great connections. So it yeah, it's been great. But slides are also great because usually one slide is twenty yeah, to thirty visual, conversation, you know. Visual can help people see, you know. Like I said, I could maybe go down that road more in the future, looking into names. But I think on the high level, it does reinforce this argument that the myths are all about you. Whether you're named after stories in you know, the New Testament, those stories are about you and recovering self. Whether it's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, whether it's in the stories of Joseph getting sold into slavery, or whether it's the other myths of the world, those stories are about trauma and separation from self and to to show us hey this has happened and you don't even know it that's why you need these myths to wake you up to the fact that you do have a higher self and to try and point us towards recovery of self so um, let me share just with that um, kind of intro i think all the things that you brought up are pertinent to what I'm trying to argue. So let me see, where's my oh, RFTA? Here they are. Here we are. So are you seeing my blank yep. screen there? Cool. Yes. And are you seeing like our little faces in over in the corner or mm-hmm. is that out of the way? Because I'm going to like minimize us first. Let me do that. Let me hide us. That'll make it easier to see the full slide just in case it's covering up something that I was trying to show. So I was actually... To segue, you've already brought up Socrates and Boreas. Socrates was talking about in Plato's dialogue, Phaedrus, which we talked about a a lot last time. He actually mentions Boreas, the North Wind, and and has one of the characters say, isn't this where Boreas snatched up the maiden? Well, Boreas, the North Wind, is associated with the constellation Hercules, And I would argue that that whole story is celestial. And that's why Plato says, don't waste your time trying to find it on the ground. That story is not about a literal geographic lesson of, oh, yeah, this is the river. No. And, And the wind snatching up that beautiful maiden is not a literal story. It's the same constellation that plays the role of Zeus, who's always seducing young women, okay? It's uh, it's a celestial metaphor that has to do with something esoteric. And then Plato has Socrates say, what we should really be concentrating on, or what I like to concentrate on instead of trying to figure out a literal interpretation of the myths, is I like to concentrate on what it says at the, uh, at the temple at Delphi, Know thyself. So this is a picture of the rem, the ruins at Delphi. This is the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. This is Delphi in Greece. And what do we know about Delphi? Well, in the myths, it's where what? God spoke to humans, or the, the gods conveyed their message to humans, specifically the god Apollo. Delphi was sacred to Apollo. And he would communicate with this priestess who had a special name. She was called the Pythia, which is spelled P-Y-T-H-I-A, because she was sitting on a tripod over the 
buried carcass of a dragon named the python or the the python was like this female dragon serpent that apollo came in and drove away or killed with his arrows and the carcass was deep under the earth above a crack and the the fumes and vapors from this dragon's body would still rise up and the priestess of the python would be sitting over this crack in the earth and get into a trance state where she would then convey the message from the gods or wow specifically apollo that's fascinating and that's kind of ties into a, a lot of other mythos too with um the taming of the serpent absolutely um, you know and like you kind of put the serpent in a trance it sleeps so the dragon's yeah. sleeping but it's like this esoteric lore wow i've never heard that story before that's fascinating yeah and it's mentioned in ancient texts so we have lots of different ancient references to delphi where different heroes have to go to the oracle at delphi and consult the priestess the pythia or the pythia to ask her you know like hercules for for instance at one point hera the the wife of zeus who's always mad at hercules she's jealous of hercules because he's a son he's one of the many sons of zeus zeus is always out philandering you know, having affairs with mortal women. And he, he has, you know, heroic sons like Perseus or Hercules or Heracles. And so she drives Heracles mad at one point and he kills his own family and uh, a bunch of other innocent people. And then comes back to his senses and he's like, oh no, what have I done? And everybody around him is horrified. They're like, Hercules or Heracles, you're so powerful, but you killed everybody we're we're terrified of you and the gods are going to be angry at you for killing all these innocent people you better go to delphi to find out what you have to do to atone or in different battles they go to delphi or they send someone to delphi to ask the gods specifically apollo for guidance you know should we do this or should we do that and the oracle will give often cryptic, mysterious kinds of answers. And then the people have to try and figure out, okay, well, what does it mean? What does the God want us to do? Well, how are we supposed to interpret this? So it's the place or one of the places, and it's really one of the main places where we interface for in ancient Greece, where you interface with the gods, with the divine, where you find out the will of this divine realm. And just to tie it back to Tacitus, since I mentioned Tacitus, Tacitus was this Roman author, writer. He was actually the son-in-law of a famous general named Agricola. And so Tacitus wrote a book about Agricola, his father-in-law. Agricola was a virtuous, stern Roman general, kind of like Maximus in the movie Gladiator, who actually conquered Britain for the Romans. He was like the main general. And Tacitus also wrote about the Germans, the Germania, the, the tribes of not Britain, but like modern day Poland, Germany, Denmark, that whole area where the, the Romans were constantly getting into battles with those guys. And he says in the in Tacitus in Germania, he says, no culture on earth 
is more into divination than these Germans. They're constantly trying to figure out the will of the gods based on the snorting of horses. You know, that was one of their main things. Like if you listen to the horses, whether they neigh or whether they snort or whether (laughs) that'll tell you before a battle what you're supposed to do. So, and, and they'll do other things too, but. That's interesting. I have gone down that rabbit hole of thinking that animals themselves are part of a a bigger, uh, ult- <laughs> a more ultimate type of simulation of mm. communication from some sort of higher up sources. Uh, you know, that's interesting. Snorting of horses to see of 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 speak of the gods. Wow. Yeah. Tacitus is very clear. You can read Tacitus online. His text is called Germania, and he's got another one that's called Agricola. And in Germania, he kind of starts out saying they're very into divination, and they got special horses that you know are kept pure just to give them, you know, the the signals from the gods. So this question wow. of how do we get in touch? Would you like to know? Right. You know, wouldn't you like to know the that you made the right choice in every situation? Because it's just so hard to know. It's so hard for us to know. And so living up to our full potential has to do, I would argue, with getting in touch with higher self. And through higher self is how we get these messages that seem to be from the realm of inspiration, the realm of the gods. So that's why I'm I'm segueing. We've talked a little bit about Delphi in our previous visit together. And at Delphi, there was a very famous inscription. So Delphi is the place where you go to hear from the gods. But there were three very famous inscriptions at Delphi. But the first and foremost one that's always mentioned first as the oldest inscription, the primary inscription, the main inscription at Delphi was, Know thyself. That was written at Delphi. Ancient sources all agree or at least they all kind of corroborate this. And Plato mentions it in that dialogue that we were talking about. Know thyself. So think about that. The place where you go to hear from the gods has an inscription that says, (laughs) know thyself. Isn't that interesting? That's a clue. How do we hear from the divine? Somehow it relates to know thyself thyself, thy higher self. Your higher self is the part of you or the aspect of you that is in touch when you let it is in touch with more, is in in touch with divine inspiration. You know, when a, you know, a famous band or, you know, rock band will sometimes say, man, I don't know where that song came from like Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. It just came to us. It is almost like it was writing itself, you know? I just, I picked up the pen and that that song just poured out on the page. Where did that come from? It came from the divine realm. And it's like the temple at Delphi, it's not necessarily a physical place. It has to do with know thyself. And I'm going to show you that it's a place. Yeah, there's a place, Delphi. But all the stories about Delphi, even modern scholars say, they're kind of contradictory. 
Did Apollo drive out a python? Was it a male python or a female python? The different myths are all contradictory. Was it a crack in the earth? Was it? There's all kinds of different descriptions of it because this is a metaphor. It's a story that has to do with how do we get in touch with the gods or the divine realm or and we do it through know thyself. We do it through getting in touch with higher self. This is a, an artist's depiction from the 1500s, obviously way later than ancient Greece, but it's an interesting portrayal of the god Apollo slaying the dragon, the python. In this case, the python has some, you know, like dinosaur front legs and back legs. In other depictions, it's a serpent. But either way, it's a pretty cool depiction, honestly. This is it's a, a great cool photo. depiction. Yeah. And it's even got some text down at the bottom that says, this is what's going on. You know, Apollo is letting loose the arrows at the dragon. But I want to point out some things, some details in this picture. Notice how Apollo has one hand almost like over his head. And he's holding the bow at kind of an angle that's a little bit downward. And he's shooting at this dragon that's got this curly Q tail. And actually, in between Apollo and the dragon, if you look closely, mm. there's a little river. The, the artist says, this is a wood engraving, actually. But there's the artist, a crocodile back there. Yeah, there's a crocodile in, crossing the river. So gator. I just, I fill what? in the river. I don't know a what gator. the crocodile's doing there. <laughs> yeah, but there, there's the it's river. It's an alchemical in, text. There's like a, always a gator or a crocodile hanging in old alchemical alchemistry labs yeah so super weird super interesting and then there's a city way way up the river you know you can see the walls of a city and so apollo's on one side of the river and the the python is on the other side of the river and above the python what is looming up there mount olympus a mountain watchtower yeah oh. a mountain with a tower on top very good yeah you guys are both right <laughs> there's a mountain, there's a tree, there's a tower. So these are all little indications that I want to argue that Delphi is not necessarily a physical place. The stories about Apollo killing the python are not literal. I mean, I don't mm. think most people today believe that Delphi <laughs> was you know, built over the, re the remains of a giant serpentine dragon, but you could believe that. You know, if you want That's to, but syn syncretic syn syncretism story. Yeah, syn syncretism is very interesting. It's certainly, you know, Santos Bonacci, who I've mentioned a little bit earlier, he talks about all the ancient wisdoms of the world syncretize or they they have mm -hmm. common patterns, and that's absolutely true. They are using the same system, and it's a celestial foundation. It's a celestial system. So I'm. Now showing a portion of the heavens, that's a very important portion of the heavens. It happens to have the Milky Way running up through it, and not just any part of the Milky Way, but the brightest and most widest part of the Milky Way. I'm going to outline it here just for everyone to see. Can you see the Milky Way there? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm, it's beautiful. I'm going to take, uh, take that away. Now you can see the Milky Way. Now, on one side of that picture, was Apollo. On the other side was the python. Let's bring in the picture again, smaller. Remember, we had that little river. What could the river in between? Oh, here Apollo we go. And the python? So can we find a archer next to a river 
in the heavens? Yes, we can. And that's the constellation Sagittarius, whose very yeah. name means the shooter of arrows or the bow, the, the bow hunter. And look at how Sagittarius has this distinctive kind of curly cue above the head. Look at the hand of Apollo. It's mm -hmm. like it's like the artist is putting a, a, a clue there. Hey, I'm talking about a constellation, and this constellation has certain features. Uh, above the head, there's a there's a uh, something sticking out above the head, and the bow is angled at this direction. And there's a river, mm. and then the bow is shooting at. This is on the other side of the Milky Way, or in the Milky Way, and then popping out on the other side. This multi-headed serpent, Scorpio. I call it a multi-headed serpent. Of course. Scorpio means a scorpion, but really in the myths, Scorpio sometimes plays a scorpion, but way more often plays some kind of a serpent, dragon, multiple-headed monster. The Hydra that Hercules uh, fights yep. is almost certainly associated with Scorpio. And you can see the stars of the constellation itself suggest multiple heads. But look at where Sagittarius is pointing the bow towards Scorpio, and in between is the river of stars, the Milky Way. This is the scene of Apollo driving out the python to make the temple of Delphi. And then the python isn't just destroyed and disintegrated. No, the body is down below the temple and mm. the fumes, the smoke are rising up. Where's the smoke rising up from the body of the dragon? Well, that's the Milky Way again. And above Scorpio, I'll just, I'll pause in a second. Oh, one, one aspect of Sagittarius is very important in the myths. I've drawn this white arrow to show, it looks like the body of Scorpio is walking kind of that mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. but then uh, not Scorpio, I said Scorpio, Sagittarius. Sagittarius looks like it's walking one way, but then looking back the other way. And look at the constellation looks like that. Now look over at Apollo. It's like he's walking one way and then pointing his arrows mm -hmm. almost back the other way. There's other ancient artwork, like ancient Greek vases yeah. I'll show you where it's even more pronounced, but it's clearly a Sagittarius depiction in this here. Interesting. I, so, where does the gator come into play on the yeah. constellations? Well, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly. Because what that I was going to say one is. one thing about the uh, about the name Roman when I put when I typed it into the Gematria calendar uh, calculator, um, every single cipher it came out to gator. That's interesting. So it's it's I mean. You know, we know about the cabal, we know about ciphers, we know about the origins, the esoteric origins of the modern alphabet. And so I just think it's funny if there is something actual connected to gay, uh, a crocodile or alligator and the Scorpio thing. Like, I mean, this this art depiction is fabulous. Like, this is no nothing shy of complete professionalism and uh and and beautiful hermetic style art of the of the antiquated days and clearly based on the stars now you know clearly a, croc based on the stars. a crocodile in a picture from the 1500s doesn't necessarily mean that the original myth had a crocodile in it right so i don't <laughs> i don't spend that much time on the crocodile but there could be a constellation <laughs> you could argue maybe there's some constellation that is crocodilian i don't know 
you know, there's uh, there's a dolphin that's up the, up, <laughs> up the Milky Way a little bit, but I wouldn't say that the dolphin constellation is really crocodilian. But let's go back to that mountain above yeah. the Python is clearly a mountain. Now look above Scorpio. I'm going to outline a really important constellation for you. This is the constellation Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is an incredibly important constellation. It sometimes does play the role of a mountain, and you can see why. I mean, mm -hmm. it looks like a house. It looks like a yes. tombstone. It looks like an obelisk. It mm -hmm. looks like a... Oh, an obelisk. Uh, yep. It, it looks like a lot of things. Ophiuchus is an incredibly important constellation, and it also looks like a tower. So as we were pointing out the you know, the 1500s painting or, or uh, woodcut, they've got a mountain with a tower on top of it. Anyway, let me go on to provide some more evidence. Like this 1500s artwork doesn't prove that the ancient Delphi myth is about Sagittarius and Scorpio and setting up Delphi where the Milky Way is. But now I'm going to, but, but it does show that somebody in the 1500s was mm -hmm. clued into the constellations. Now I'm going to go to scope indications. Yeah. I'm going to go to, uh, Oh, there's, there's other different myths about the founding of Delphi. I just moved the constellations over a little bit to bring in the Zodiac constellation that's next to Sagittarius on the other side from Scorpio. There is a myth that is recorded by ancient sources that, well, another, reason why Delphi is where it is, not just Apollo slaying the python, was there was a shepherd who was grazing his goats, and the goats were skipping and dancing around this uh, crack in the earth, and the fumes were making the goats get high and, and act crazy. And so the shepherd went over, and the fumes overwhelmed him, and he went into a trance, and he had these amazing visions. And a shepherd with goats next to a, you know, a crack with the fumes coming up. Sagittarius is a figure, I talk about it in some of my books, that does play a shepherd because right next to Sagittarius is this constellation right here, Capricorn, mm. the goat. So here's some more evidence from ancient sources that this part of the heavens is behind the myth of Delphi or the location of Delphi. So I'm, I'm working here, I'm laboring to try and demonstrate that Delphi, yeah, it's a real place. But those stories about Delphi, those mythical associations of Delphi, it's actually talking about something celestial, metaphorical, esoteric. This is about mm. where do you and I get in touch with divine inspiration? We don't have to go to a specific place. It's great if you can go to Delphi and get inspired. That's great. But if you can't, it's okay. Because this is not to be a geography lesson about where it is on the earth. This is about the heavens because it's a metaphor to, to help you get in touch with your higher self, to get in touch with the gods through higher self. So Interesting. So let me show another piece. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I'm, I'm kind of getting some like um, gateway or rainbow, uh, the rainbow bridge 
oh, kind yeah. of vibes yeah, where yeah. there's like that kind of get that you know doorway to the gods he- and Heimdall, yeah. so Heimdall Heimdall is is the the gatekeeper at the Rainbow Bridge the Bifrost Bridge and the Norse myths but there's rainbow um you know portals or connections between heaven and earth and many different myths and I do have a whole book on the Norse myths where I talk about Heimdall and I argue that Heimdall is associated with Ophiuchus right next to the Milky oh, Way. So wow. the Milky Way is the Milky Way is the the bridge. It's like the passage that connects. It's the mm-hmm. the the linchpin that connects us to the higher realm and Ophiuchus really plays the linchpin the the transmission if you will, the pivot mm-hmm. point between mm-hmm. us and connecting us with the higher realm. And so Ophiuchus figures will often portray the characteristics of higher self. So, so that's a great, uh, not analogy, but connection that you just made, Romy. Okay. Yeah, cool. And you have that in one of your books too. So that I, I'm going to have to get my hands on the Norse myth uh, Volume by, four. by your work, sir. That sounds fascinating. Yep. Volume, Volume four? four. Dan's nice. on it. Dan is on nice. it. Nice. So, so this is actually a scene from a myth that's not very well known, an episode in the myths that today we don't hear too much about, but the ancients depicted it in a lot of pottery. This is the character of Hercules there on the right, stealing something and being chased by the god Apollo. What, what's going on? And you can tell that it's Apollo and Hercules because at least in this particular vase, which is found in the Louvre in Paris. You can go to Paris. You know, the, the French took it at some point. I laugh only because it's, you know, <laughs> it's not funny, but, um, you know, the, the French got a hold of this and, and now it's in the Louvre. But I'm glad that it's on display for all to see. But you can see on this beautiful vase, this beautiful artwork that some ancient writer has put the name of Apollo above Apollo's head and the name of Heracles going down on the right edge, just as it's curving away. That says Hercules, or actually it says Heracles. So we know who these two figures are. And this kind of tug of war between Hercules and Apollo, or Heracles and Apollo, using this figure, what is that thing that he's carrying? Yeah, what is that thing? I'm so, I'm captivated by what this thing is. I have no idea. It looks like a... It's a tripod. Tripod. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, it looks like a hoverboard or something. (laughs) Yeah, it's a hoverboard. It's an ancient. uh, It's one of those, one of those like surfboards, like that's a foil board. Yeah, anti gravitics. It's a flying device. No, it's a it's a tripod. So the the priestess at Delphi sat in a tripod. You can Uh. you can see paintings of the Pythia or the Pythia sitting over the fumes in a tripod and Heracles or Hercules in one of his many different mythical adventures decided to steal. He was mad at the God Apollo for some reason. Maybe the, the Oracle didn't give him the answer that he wanted. I forget exactly the details of the story. The main important thing is he got mad and he said, I'm going to just take this tripod until I get the answer I want. And Apollo's like, wait a minute, you can't take the tripod from Delphi. And he, <laughs> and he chased after him. And here's one of many pieces of beautiful ancient artwork showing this episode from the myths of Hercules 
absconding with the sacred tripod from Delphi and Apollo running after him with his bow and arrows. So what's going on here? And let me bring in the, 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 the night sky again. We've got, again, the same part of the sky with the Milky Way. Let me draw in Sagittarius, which I just took some time to show. I believe that the god Apollo is associated with Sagittarius. Certainly the artist of that 1500s print thought that Apollo was associated with Sagittarius. I've got other evidence I show in some other different podcasts and other blogs and other books that the twin sister of Apollo, Artemis, is also clearly depicted with Sagittarius elements. Mm -hmm. Apollo and Artemis, they both use a bow. They're twins. They're both associated with Sagittarius. Let's just... I'm arguing that. Let's just grant me that for the sake of argument. I'm going to show you some more evidence. <laughs> you are granted this. Okay. Well, one is so the gonna... feminine and one is the masculine aspect, right? That's right. And one's the sun and one's the moon. And yeah. they both use bows. They're, they're um, you know, the god and the goddess that are associated or, or they're associated with Sagittarius. There's other gods that are and goddesses that are associated with Sagittarius. All of the constellations can play different figures yes. in the myths, both male yes. figures and female figures. Yeah, let me show you. That's hermetic all day. Absolutely, absolutely, and and because these stories are about you and me, they're not just about men. They're not just about women. These are this is the experience of everybody. We all have to get in touch with our higher self. It's not just for men. It's not just for women. Relatability. Now here's. Yeah, here, here's here's the constellation Hercules. Do you see any similarities in the constellation Hercules and that depiction of Hercules in the in the vase? Like extended mm-hmm. rear leg with heel raised, deep kind of knee bend in the front leg there. One big weapon raised overhead, kind of square-shaped head with a full beard, much different shaped head than Apollo, who doesn't have a full beard. He's kind of got long hair. <laughs> He's more associated with Sagittarius, more graceful looking figure. Hercules is a more menacing looking figure. Um, Mm -hmm. Often wearing a lion's skin, that square shaped head of the actual constellation corresponds to the full beard of Hercules, but it even comes more square when he's wearing that uh, lion headdress. And what's in between Hercules and Sagittarius in the sky? Well, what's in between Heracles and Apollo in the vase, in the artwork. That would be Ophiuchus. Mm. So Ophiuchus is the tripod. I know it doesn't really look like a tripod, but look at the triangular top of Ophiuchus. And then there's two kind of parallel pillars and then a third kind of going off to one side. It could look like a tripod. Mm. That's where the Pythia sits when she's over the fumes of the dragon's body, the dragon is right below her feet, that's Scorpio. This is an ancient vase that shows that the tripod of Delphi or Delphi is in between Hercules and Apollo or in between the constellation Hercules and Sagittarius. It is the place where you meet with the gods is associated with a specific constellation in the heavens, Ophiuchus. That's where you hear the voice of the gods. And what does it say at Delphi? Know thyself. That, what I'm 
trying to show with just some examples is that the ancient myths are A, based on the stars, they're metaphorical. You guys still there? Yep. Sounds like I lost you. Oh, good. Okay. Um, they're metaphorical and they are about, they're not just, you know, making a puzzle for us to try and figure out as just an intellectual exercise. They're actually about something that's very profound. They're about how we get inspiration, how we interface with the divine realm, how we get the messages that tell us which way to go. The myths always show or often show mythical characters going to the temple at Delphi to get the message from the gods because it's hard to know the right way to go, the right choice to make. Should I, you know, move to Hawaii? Should I move to California? The, <laughs> that's the kind of thing you would go to the, the temple at Delphi to try and find out. Well, it's not that you have to go to a specific place. You have to try and get back in touch with who you are, your own self that you've been separated from. All these traumatic incidents in the myths are showing us that we are separated from those answers because of trauma. Um, and when you know yourself, which is what it says at the Temple at Delphi, that's the place that you need to get to. It's not a physical place on the ground. Mm -hmm. Oh, I got to go to this latitude and longitude, and then I'll get the will of the gods. No, it's a state that you have to get to of knowing yourself. The more you get in touch with yourself, the more you open up to being able to get those answers and to hear and to, and to be able to do the things and get out of your own way to not self-sabotage and to live up to what your, what your potential is. That's just a little example from from some artwork uh, is there is there anything that so i know a lot of this is metaphorical like you say but is there um a potential that this heightened period is during the sagittarius time on like during the transition like maybe the um the effects that we feel on earth are being represented from the specific time period because uh, you know something else with looking up history research history you know dates stick out to you right and you start to look at different dates october november and december are very heavy dates that get repeated a lot with very significant things in history and, you know, I, I know a lot of people would associate that to, you know, um, you know, the, it's the, the fall period into the winter. So it's the darker period. So like those things are transitioning to bloom into the spring, yada, yada, so on and so forth. But it is relatively more of an introspective time period that we experience here in the winter. You know, you're going inside a lot of your head, you're inside, you know, and you're around fires more often to keep warm and that type of inspiration. So what do you think? What do you think about uh, that? What's your take on, on that, on that time period itself? It's a great observation, Romy. So this ancient system is so profound and it uses a code. It's like these yeah. constellations have different 
associations and characteristics that are tied in to the cycles of the heavens. You know, I mentioned that our cycle of breathing and our cycles of the heartbeats and other rhythms of the body, we, we are supposed to be tied in with nature and with the universe. That is what we're, that's the condition that we're supposed to be in. So trauma separates us not just from ourselves, but from nature, from the universe. And so as we recover connection with self, we recover, we recover connection with nature. Or yeah, it yeah. can also work the other way. Mm. Going out into nature can help us to get back in, to get to hear who we are, to, to get back in touch with who we are. So in, in the, the, that. Yeah, the time of the year where days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, and then there's a turning point and days start to get longer again. That has esoteric significance. So this system doesn't just choose Sagittarius and Ophiuchus for no reason. Mm -hmm. It chooses them because, one, that's the place where the zodiac path crosses the Milky Way at its brightest point. The Milky Way intersects the zodiac at two points. One at this point in between Sagittarius and Scorpio and right there next to Ophiuchus, and then one on the other side, on the dimmer side. This is the, the brightest part. Anyway, I'm getting into some celestial mechanics. I do talk about this a lot in Celestial Mechanics and the Myths, but just to tie it back to what you're saying, because it's a very astute observation on your part, a very insightful question that you're asking. That time of year, when days are getting shorter and shorter, when night hours of darkness are dominating over hours of daylight in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the opposite in the Southern. Okay, we live on a globe. And I had to get that in there. Everyone's like, oh man, he's a government agent. He's trying to tell me that we're... Yeah, no. you said you went to Harvard I've already, been... so you're already... Yeah, I know. You're already well, I went to West Point for... <laughs> West Point, U.S. military academy. But I've been to New Zealand, I've been to Australia, you know, I've been to the Southern Hemisphere. I can give you several pieces of evidence that I would argue point to us being on a sphere, but let's not get, I think that whole. You're with some, you're with track. some spearheads here. Don't, don't worry. You're, you're, you're in good company. I, I know, but it's like this whole thing came out of nowhere. I was writing about and talking about this stuff for a couple of years before all of a sudden every video I put up got like flat earth comments on it. It's like it came out of nowhere and with a lot of force. And I do think it's a, like a misdirection kind of clutter up the, uh, clutter up the conversation and get everybody off on tangents, which I'm sorry, we already went off on too long of a tangent on that. But anyway, in the Northern hemisphere, this is the darkest time of year, the days as we get down to the winter solstice, but then there's a rebirth and the, that's that birth that was associated with Artemis. The goddess Artemis oh. is a virgin goddess, but in the ancient Greek myths, she is present at the birth of every child. Every child 
when the woman is trying to give birth, she would pray in ancient Greece to the goddess Artemis. She would, Artemis had to be there to let her finally give birth. So we have a virgin goddess who's presiding over birth. And at that point, I just showed you how Sagittarius is right next to that brightest part of the Milky Way. This has to do with a spiritual birth. It's not a physical birth. If it's mm -hmm. a virgin, if it's a virgin goddess, it's not a birth that has to do with sex. It's a birth that has to do with spirit. It has to do with, so this ancient system is very profound and it uses the cycles of the heavens and the, and the parts of the year have esoteric significance to them that have to do with the spiritual birth means getting back in touch with your higher self. The physical birth has to do with, you know, coming down into a human body. The spiritual birth has to do with realizing, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, I've been separated from who I am. I want to start to get more in tune with who I am and recover that self, that higher self. It's a different concept. So the, the myths oh. use, they, they use the cycles. So it's a great question. Is there, is there an Artemis Mary crossover? Um, yeah. So at, in the Bible, there's two Marys, right? There's two Marys. There's Mary, there's the Virgin Mary. And, you know, that, that, um, the birth of Jesus stories have a lot to do with Virgo, the Virgin mm. in the heavens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Virgo is basically three months before Sagittarius. It goes Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius. So Virgo is the first mother and Sagittarius is the second mother in this system, in this system. So I talk about this a lot. It's, it's easier to show if I had a Zodiac wheel here, but those listeners who are familiar with the Zodiac wheel probably can visualize it in their heads. Those who aren't can just go to any Zodiac, you know, we'll just search for it on the internet. And you'll see that the plunge down into the lower half of the year for the Northern Hemisphere happens in the age of Aries at the crossing point between Virgo and Libra. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the plunge down. So I talked a lot about it. It gets pretty complicated. It's really not that complicated, but it's like, it needs a diagram and it needs some, you know, animation. That's why my, <laughs> my, my online courses are really, I think, helpful to try and like explain this system, but this ancient yeah, even your, even profound. your slides here tonight were really, uh, you're the way you did your slides were like very, it's like, okay, you know, you, you definitely set up quite a few presentations from time to time because that flow is really nice. And whatever program you're using is also looks very adequate. Well, thanks. Those are, you know, those are basically just slides that I'm making with some animation in Apple you know, simple Apple tools like Keynote, but um, I do use some Stellarium, which is an online planetarium to to show those outlines that I'm pulling in there, which is a free online planetarium that people can download. It's a fantastic. They have a cloud-based version, but really the download version is really helpful. But um, not to get too into the weeds, what I'm just trying to mainly impart 
and give a taste of is that these myths are about you. They're about recovery of self. They use this pretty amazing, profound system to show it, to demonstrate it, and they demonstrate it in some profound and amazing ways. But what I'm trying to show is with these myths about Delphi, Delphi is the place where you interface with the divine. And it can be shown to be celestial. It's like you don't have to go find fumes in the earth and go into a trance, breathing fumes to hear the voice of the God. What you have to do, or goddess, you know, because the, the fumes are the female python rising up to the female Pythia, getting the message from Apollo, who in some, you know, some people think, oh, this is all about the, uh, must be later Mycenaean invaders coming and taking over a mother goddess uh, location. Maybe. I don't think it's historical at all. I think it's esoteric. It's trying to tell you, you've got to get in touch with yourself. You've got to know yourself, your higher self. And that higher self has to do with that's the interface between you and the realm of the gods. And it's depicted in these cycles using constellations that are always clustered around that part where the zodiac crosses with the Milky Way. And I, I get into it more in, in the online courses. But I could show this in other parts of the world too. I can, you, you know, you mentioned, let me just quickly, uh, uh, I know we're, what is it? It's, it's man, it's almost nine o'clock. What are yeah, we? Yeah, I got about 10 nine. minutes. Let me just show you one more. Mm. Let me just quickly, uh, am I, we're sharing already. Okay. Let me just quickly uh, segue over. Oh, yeah. So uh, am I sharing or not sharing? Yeah. Yeah. Sharing. You're sharing. Okay. We see the, uh, the, the clay the pot with Hercules and Apollo. Okay. I've got this thing in the front of my screen. I'm going to get this out of here. All right. You're still seeing it? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. All right. So this part of the sky, the serpent, you know, Sagittarius fighting the serpent. Oh, is that, you know, a male God uh, taking over from a female goddess? Maybe, but it's really, it's celestial. Let me show you this part of the sky that we've been looking at with a myth from ancient India. This is something I, I talked about it in a recent podcast. So I'm just pulling this up quickly, but this is Krishna, the God Krishna dancing on the head of a serpent. This is a serpent whose name is Kaliya, the Kaliya Nag. He lives in a river and he's a multi-headed serpent. In this particular mm -hmm. depiction, he just has one head. He's got many wives that come plead with Krishna. Please don't kill him. Just He's gotten outside of his boundaries. Just put him just send him back within his boundaries, and we promise he won't do any more, you know, terrorizing of the villages like he's been doing. <laughs> this is esoteric. It has to do with our higher self putting our different parts into their places when they get out of line. The one that can harmonize and put mm. the different parts mm -hmm. of who we are back in their proper boundaries because they all have good characteristics and good intentions all our different parts 
that seem to be doing self-sabotage, like our anger or our, you know, whatever it is, those all have roles, actually. Lust, you know, lust means like sexual uh, appetites that have gotten way outside of their boundaries, but we don't want to get rid of them altogether. We want them, <laughs> we want them to be, you know, in harmony and in their right places. And anger or, you know, rage or, you know, the God of war aspects of who we are, those are necessary at some you know times we have them for a reason but we don't want them taking over when we're just driving down the street or you know talking to our kids <laughs> that's like out of bounds so getting them back in their boundaries that's what the myths are trying to show that's what self higher self can put the whole orchestra back into harmony or put the whole team back into harmony instead of all the different players on the team fighting with each other. So here's Krishna dancing on the Kaliya Nag. He's playing a flute. Can you see Ophiuchus dancing on Scorpio there? Mm -hmm. Can you see the flute? Mm -hmm. See how there's a flute there? Here's another picture. Oh, this bitch. one, Kaliya Nag has multiple heads in this one. The, the wives are actually Sagittarius with their hands together, begging Krishna, please don't kill him. This is a, a specific myth from ancient india where we have a subduing of a serpent again but this time instead of sagittarius figure apollo with his bow we have a ophiuchus figure krishna with his flute dancing on the heads of the kaliyanag but it has to do with the same thing this is how we get back in touch with self krishna is a image of higher self and in the Bible, there's even, a, here's one more with Krishna dancing on the heads of multiple, there's more modern, but this story is still reenacted and you can get all, you know, caught up in, well, which river was it exactly that Krishna, you know, danced on the head of the serpent? No, it's not. It's celestial. The serpent is Krishna. The Krishna is the serpent. It is the, the trans transmutation. Well, he's the higher self. So Scorpio is, is a picture of one of our, you know, the, the, the Zodiac constellations have to do with our different aspects of who we are. You may have more Scorpio characteristics. I may have more Sagittarius character. You know, we all have this recipe of well, who we are. Something funny is my, I'm, I'm a Scorpio son and my best friend of all time. The oldest friend that I have, uh, is a Sagittarius. And like we have a very, very awesome dynamic that has allowed us to be friends for over 17 years now. So yeah. I just think that's kind of interesting on its own. Yeah, I thought you were going to say over seven decades. <laughs> <laughs> over seven lifetimes, actually. Can I ask you a few questions? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> on, that, on that picture that you're showing with... Uh, the hydra or the seven-headed snake it's always there's always like seven seven snake heads or whatnot but in the scorpio constellation mm -hmm. uh it, it seems to Chakras. only have five um why do you think they're depicting seven instead of five then yeah well there's a lot so there's lots of stars there i could zoom in on it oh. <clears throat> so in some myths you'll have a serpent with seven some myths you'll have a serpent with nine, like the Hydra has nine heads. Uh -huh. In some myths, you'll have a two-headed serpent. Mm -hmm. um, so 
and also in the Bible, you have a ten-headed dragon. Well, I think it's a seven-headed dragon with ten, ten crowns. Crowns. Uh, yeah, it's in Revelation twelve. I'd have to actually. I do have a Bible within arm's reach here. Let me see how many heads it is in Revelation twelve. Uh, is it so that so, so the, it's the, what I'm saying is it's variable. Like if yeah. you see a multi-headed serpent, artist interpretation. Look for other clues, but almost certainly you're you're dealing with Scorpio. In most cases, you're dealing with Scorpio for a multi-headed serpent. And in some serpent, in some stories, it'll have seven heads. Okay, so in Revelation 12, it's a uh, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So seven heads in some cases, nine heads in other myths. It it's it's a clue that you're talking about Scorpio, probably, but you want to look for other evidence too. What are these I... ten horns? Like, what what are the horns on? And where? How how do you divide up the ten horns on seven heads? Yeah, well, that's a that's a <laughs> unicorn. Question. So there's a crown. There's a crown. <laughs> yeah, there's a crown up in up in the uh, heavens above Scorpio. That's the northern crown, and it also has seven stars in it. So mm. I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it's mm-hmm. it's not always it's not always perfectly clear. What, yeah. Like, how did they come up with this number? Mm-hmm. Like, why are there, you know, this many? But so you have to look at all the clues that you have available in that particular passage. The scorpion is crouching in front of the woman who's about to give birth, and that's clearly Virgo. Virgo in the heavens looks like it's a i could show it to you um, and then uh the screen again Look. also ahead. from that image i kind of get some uh pan vibes oh some so little krishna pan crossover there let me see if i can find virgo here let me just move this out of the way so here's virgo um let me address pan in a second but here's virgo's basically she goes across the heavens on her back uh-huh. with her legs elevated and raised as if she's about to give birth. So the seven-headed dragon is crouching in front of the woman about to give birth. So you can look at clues, and then the crown is actually right up here. This is the crown up here above oh. this serpent head of, of Sagittarius. So you've got to do a little bit of detective work, oh, and it's not always 100% clear. Now, Pan... Um, it's definitely associated with goats and with um, uh, satyrs or, you know, the lower half of a goat, upper half of torso of a man. Uh, I've done some arguing that he's on a different part of the heavens, mostly okay. over by the constellation Perseus. So um, it's mostly just a flute action going on that made me think of that well, and the, the girls, i kind of get i kind of get it too though like the bottom half is like his lower half is like a goat but his top half is a body it's almost like that kind of divide with the lower certain, half yeah. being yeah so that that, that is kind of interesting actually yeah so if you go to my this is this is uh 
my blog, which is searchable. If you go to starmythworld.com, you'll find the blog there and it's fully searchable. But we could look up, um, actually, I do a pretty long explanation of the King Midas myth, where Midas is always using bad judgment and mm. awarding, <laughs> uh, actually, in a contest between Apollo and a satyr, not necessarily Pan himself, but awarding the satyr Marcius the award over Apollo, the god of music, which is a foolish choice. And I, I give some explanations as to where that is in the heavens and how this is the Pan pipes, this is the tail, Andromeda and Perseus. It's a complicated argument. I don't, um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have all the uh, diagrams to really prove it right now, but you can mm. see right here, I'm arguing that the pan pipes are right here. See, there's, there's actually, this is the mm. Phrygian cap of King Midas on nice. Perseus <clears throat> and Midas has to go dunk his head at the source of a river, ah. the river Pactolus, which is the Milky Way. But this is like the source of the river. This is the, the brighter part of the river why won't you move over? The brighter part of the river is over here where Apollo is, Sagittarius. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. This is the dimmer part of the river. This is like, uh -huh. it's almost like a gap in the Milky Way. That's the source. That's like where the Milky Way starts. And Midas, after his foolish choices, has to go back and dunk his head in the river. This is a pretty... Is that possibly where explicit. the bagpipes came from? <laughs> well... Good question. The bagpipes um, constellation kind of almost looks like a bagpipe. Could be. I'm curious about this, like the Milky Way, like now looking at, like if we were to zoom out, like a, what the shape that it makes, and are all of these constellations actually on edges of the Milky Way like that? No. Oh, okay. Because so, those two were really close to each other. I was like, I, yeah. that got me thinking that they well, were. So they're very mythologically important, the two rings. So they actually make like two rings in the heavens. Uh, oh, it's, like it's a better on my. Like a chain? Like, yeah, like. Chain link? Chain? Yeah. Like, like the ring of the zodiac is the ring that the sun, the moon, mm -hmm. and the planets goes along. The Milky Way is like another full ring that intersects that almost perpendicular, not perfectly perpendicular, but almost perpendicular. So they make two different paths. And the myths use that in mm -hmm. this ancient system that I was trying to explain to you. So the Milky Way path is very celestially significant. And it has to do with recovering higher mm -hmm. self. And the zodiac is also very significant. And it has to do with our trials and tribulations here on earth, there's the upper part of the zodiac and the lower part of the zodiac. And the birth at Virgo happens at the beginning of the lower part of the zodiac. So that's when mm -hmm. we get plunged down into this lower realm, the lower body, mm -hmm. and we take on a physical form. Yep. And then we have to being born again and go through that awakening process and hit those growth spurts. I so I just talked to somebody not too long ago that was telling me about that kind of function that you just described with, you know, we have our um centrifugal 
shape that we take going this way. But at that same time, there is this other uh, cosmic life that's moving this way in counter rotation. And then when we will actually have like celestial effects as that makes it because it's on a bigger um, uh, yeah, that's like the, the word I'm looking for rotation. No. Yeah, so I'm curious. What have you looked into that? Like, what's as the as the Milky Way moves through? Are there different stories that take place between these characters that you've already brought up that are kind of in line with the Milky Way? Yeah, I mean, these are great questions. <laughs> the, the cycles. I am inclined to argue that the cycles of the heavens are used by this profound and spiritually sophisticated ancient system to impart esoteric truths. So it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily refer to, oh, this must be a time when the earth uh -huh. yeah. was at this part of this heavenly cycle. I believe they're using the cycles to tell you about your own situation. But maybe they're operating on multiple levels and it is talking about well, when we get to this, you know, when the sun, look, the sun may be a binary. I know, I, th I think, Dan, you and I might have talked about this. Mm -hmm. The sun may be uh -huh. a binary. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with uh, Walter Cruttenden, who has the Binary Research Institute that talks about the evidence that our sun, like virtually every other star in our heavens, we've now discovered mm -hmm. that virtually every star that we look at is a multiple. It's either a binary or it's a triple or it's a five star system where they're all in a dance together. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes more sense than being standalone. Like why would we be the only... Now, some people might say, well, maybe we're, we evolved because it's very hard to evolve on a planet if you're not in a solo, so we were lucky, but mm. it's more likely that we're actually in a binary. And then I'm also in contact with Simon Shack and Patrick Holmquist of the Tycos model. And I've even made a video about the Tycos model. There is evidence of what we see in the heavens that suggests we are in a binary, either in a binary, the way that the Tycos model suggests, Simon Shack, or in a binary, the way that Walter Cruttenden suggests. In other words, our sun itself may have a binary companion, and the Earth is stuck inside of this dance and doing this dance with a, our sun and a binary companion. And that cycle may also have an impact on life on Earth. Walter Cruttenden uh -huh. argues that you know when we get closer to our binary companion, we yeah. on Earth are in a more of a golden era. Uh -huh. We're getting the rays from two different mm -hmm. suns uh, nourishing us and yeah. raising our vibration. But when we're far, far away, that's like the Kali Yuga in the, you know, we're, oh, Iron we're, Age. we're so far away from our other companion. We're out here in the cold with just the sun. Yeah. You know? It's so a sad it, time. Long distance relationships are not long easy. Distance relationship. <laughs> so it may be that the myths are encoding that. I don't, deny that as a possibility, but I tend to argue, look, I can show a lot of evidence 
that they're using these cycles esoterically. Uh-huh. Now, if, if it also corresponds to some literal connection with those cycles, I'm happy. I'm not, I'm not yeah. against that. Hey, a multiple, multiple meanings. Sweet. Love it. But I'm, I'm, I tend to take an esoteric interpretation first and a literal interpretation mm-hmm. like takes more, it takes more evidence um, uh, because I can prove that it's metaphorical. If all these right. stories like Krishna dancing on the serpents can be yeah. shown to be in the heavens, which it can, then I've proven with a lot of evidence that it's metaphorical. So if it's metaphorical, now you've got to prove to me that it's literal because I've just showed you that it's metaphorical. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I have one more uh, question to throw at you. And uh, there's this video. <laughs> as, many, as many as you want. There's this video online about the Euphrates River drying up. But the Euphrates is also called the dragon. Okay. It's, uh, it's like the dragon. Oh. It's name, it names Euphrates means dragon. And the fact that it's drying up and they're hearing like noises of chains clanking or whatever, it's like the beast underneath the ground. But when you're given this presentation, it's a lot like the serpent mythology of, of Scorpio. It's Milky Way, right? Uh, and, and the dragon being the Euphrates. I'm wondering if there's any correlations between here and the star myths. And uh, because this is also something that's in the book of Revelation also. Great, great question. I'm not super uh, familiar with these stories about the clanking that you're hearing, <laughs> but <laughs> they say like yeah, people, uh, are, people are saying they're hearing. They say but... like the Nephilim are trapped underground in chains, right? Uh, and so yeah. now people are going into the caves because the Euphrates is dried up, and now they're hearing like these noises. Obviously, what? they're I've within ne- tunnels and stuff, and so like you hear whooshing and. Uh, when moving through these tunnels and they make like howling or noises or pitches that sound like moaning or groaning, but people are, are trying to impart it into a biblical narrative. So I was just wondering if maybe you're aware of it or had any, uh, more oh, they say it's going to dry up like by 2040, the, the astrology aspect of the Euphrates or anything like that. Yeah, so the the rivers in the myths, including in the Bible and including in the Mesopotamian myths, are very often associated with the Milky Way. And in the Milky Way, in the Mesopotamian stories where you've got these great battles going on, I so I have a whole chapter in my book that's called Ancient Worldwide System. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2019. That's Star Myths of the World, Volume 1. So okay. Volume 4 is Norse myths. Volume two is Greek myths. Volume three is the Bible, Star Myths of the Bible. Volume one is like a tour of many different cultures, including some myths from Africa, myths from Australia, myths from ancient China, myths from ancient Japan. It has a whole chapter on, or maybe there's more than one chapter actually, on the Mesopotamian myths, like the battles between Tiamat or Tiamat and Marduk. And uh, there's a whole chapter, or maybe there's a few chapters on the Egyptian myths. There's multiple chapters on the myths of ancient India, including the Mahabharata and, you know, Krishna and the creation 
uh, Vishnu, uh, Vishnu dreaming on the, you know, the ocean. That's all in volume one, which is called Ancient Worldwide System. So there's lots of analysis of Mesopotamian myths that people can check out. But I would say that the biblical flood stories, these things about the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men, I would argue that those are esoteric. We are the Nephilim that are trapped in chains. We're, we're in, we're the divine spark that's mm. trapped inside the prison of the mortal body. We have mm. to understand we're down here in the underworld. <laughs> this, this is trying to describe your condition, like wake up. Yeah. What metaphors yeah. can I give you to make you understand that you have a divine spark inside that frustrating human body of yours inside this frustrating <laughs> down here in this realm of darkness and, 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 and chains, you have access to a divine self. You've got mm -hmm. a divine self that's buried inside of a, a physical self. And it's, it, it's not just binary. It's not just like physical, bad, spiritual good. That's, that's like a extreme kind of Gnostic or Manichaean. Mm. It's the marriage of the, this, of the two, right? Like, this but that, that's hard. That's the difficult part. It's almost like the, the water, these Euphrates waters are like maybe mucking it's, you know, they're, they're being poured on us so we can't reach our true temperature or something like that. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> what I, what I like to think of it is it's like giving you a map of you. It's like you reader or you listener to the myths. Let me show you what's going on inside of you. You're not just a split personality of higher self and lower self. You're more complicated than that. You're a multiple personality you, me, and everybody else, you've got inside of you the god of war and the goddess of love Yes, and, and the goddess of wisdom. Or, you know, you've got Solomon and you've got King Midas. Or you've got Athena and you've got Ares and you've got Dionysus. And let me show you how complicated yeah. the picture inside your head is. And you've been, you can probably point to times where you feel like I just got taken over by, you know, that, that part of me that I call, you know, angry Dave or whatever, you know, whatever it is, you're like, oh man, why did that guy show up right there? Yeah. Yeah. How do I get him back in his right place? Well, the one that unites them and gets them all working together in the right way, that's called self. That, that is krishna that is ophiuchus jesus right that is buddha jesus isn't a literal figure jesus, jesus. Is you you have higher self and, high, and what does jesus go around doing healing higher self can heal those traumas and higher self is actually indestructible no matter what trauma you've gone through higher self actually can can sail through it and and survive it. Mm -hmm. Jesus can mm -hmm. get Jesus can get speared in the side. Osiris can get cut up into 14 pieces. Dionysus can get torn limb from limb 
and you know his mother burned up while she's still pregnant with him and all these horrific traumatic things it is trying to show you that you dan and you Romy and you dave and you listener have this complicated landscape and that landscape that the myths are showing that's you and it's got all these battles going on the trojan war or the mahabharata battle of kurukshetra in the myths of ancient india that battle is going on or the the battle between tiamat and marduk and all the different gods and creatures take sides in the myths of ancient mesopotamia it's not a literal battle that took place thousands and thousands of years ago at a specific piece of terrain on the earth that's a battle that's going on inside of you and the one that brings it into harmony is self and so that battle and and all those characters you're familiar with them already you've experienced them if you've you know if you're an adult you've you've had all these parts of mm -hmm. you uh running around and going and messing things up and the more we can get in touch with self which we don't even know that we have higher self uh, we often suppress even the knowledge that we've buried our higher self because it's so traumatic the reason we buried that higher self is so traumatic that we'd like to forget that it happened and so the myths wake us up to this situation and they say hey you actually have a higher self that can put these parts back into harmony it's not just oh i've got a a good self and a bad self or a, mm -hmm. hairy, a hairy self and a smooth self. No, it's, it's actually more, even more, <laughs> it's more complicated. Although they do use twinning to show it, but they use even more metaphors to show you're actually a multiple and, and the, myths, the myths show this. And I'm using also the psychological paradigm that Dr. Richard Schwartz talks about in internal family systems. He discovered it based on talking to thousands of patients that we have an internal family. And when I started hearing mm. what he said, I said, this is Oof. exactly what the myths are talking about. We have an internal family and the myths are showing it all the time in many different ways. And so internal family systems is an example of a clinical psychologist who has dealt with actual patients, tens of thousands of them, and realized this is what's going on in our head. Let me try and describe it to you. And as he's describing it, we can see that the myths have described it without telling us that that's what they're describing <laughs> for thousands yeah. of years. Does that it's make like sense? You, it's like the crown that you wear. The crown symbolizes the stars or the, the uh, celestial bodies, you know? And so it's like we almost all have the crown or the ring of the zodiac that interacts with us like simultaneously like as they pop in like you said it's like yeah when that that anger comes over you or that jealousy the shadow these things it's almost like that they're, they're all they're always there and you know it just depends on what is fulfilling what role at what time and these stories that you so beautifully have woven and shown uh that they that they do they have these these archetypal roles that we all have characteristics of and they, they involve themselves with us constantly. And it's almost like if you were to chant, you know, to that specific 
constellation or you were to try to divinate that sort of like type of energy and bring it up and say, I would like to actually have this archetype with me right now. You could do that by looking at these myths. Would, would you agree with that? Yes. So like what you said about, Oh, the shadow self came up or, or whatever, um, or maybe I need it right now. Can I chant to it or bring it up? Dr. Schwartz, founder of the internal family systems paradigm has a book that's called no bad parts. His most recent mm. book is called mm. no bad parts. Your parts are actually all different gifts that you've been given all the different ingredients of your personality, your different strengths and weaknesses are different than mine, different than Dan's. You know, we all have a different mixture of, you know, ingredients, let's say. And um, they're actually all trying to keep the system together. And when they, when, when the shadow self shows up and we're like, oh, it's so negative, it's actually, according to Dr. Schwartz, and I think he's right, it's actually, even if it's doing something kind of horrific, drinking me into oblivion, you know, like, why am I, <laughs> why am I? <laughs> There's a great scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where, um, Leonardo DiCaprio is like great movie himself, and he's looking at himself in the mirror and he's like you couldn't stop at four whiskey sours could you you had to drink eight what the hell's the matter with you <laughs> and then he like grabs a bottle and drinks from it and he's like what the f am I doing and he throws it out the you know he throws it out the door he opens the door and throws it out he's like what what am I doing well what is that part doing that's drinking it's actually is it a bad part that's trying to destroy you no it's actually trying to suppress trauma. It's actually, it's a, it's a firefighter. Dr. Schwartz calls it a firefighter that's rushing in to try and put out the memory uh, of the trauma that you weren't ooh. able to. Okay. So that's heavy. How do you fix that? And Dr. Schwartz talks about it. You, you, you don't actually, you can't tell that firefighter, that protective part, go away and never come back. <laughs> <laughs> re referring to another movie. Don't do your job. <laughs> right? In the in the in the Lord of the Rings, the Smeagol Golem character says, Go away and never come back. Oh, he went away. Well, guess what? He'll be back. It it doesn't work to just try and banish that part because that part is actually playing a role to protect you, even though it's doing it in a destructive way. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. trying to help. What you actually have to do is say to that part, thank you. I see that you're trying to help. I see that there's been times in my life mm -hmm. where I've actually, you felt like you needed to rush in and drink me into being numb. And I realized what you were trying to do was, was, um, was save the situation. And what you're actually protecting is a, is a trauma, but the self, the higher self, remember Jesus can go around and heal anything. He goes around mm -hmm. and makes the blind see. He makes the lame to walk. Self can actually go in to that part that's been traumatized that the protecting part is trying to suppress and heal that trauma. Mm. And, and Dr. Schwartz shows this. And the myths show it in metaphorical form. So it's like those parts, I, I went off on this description because you mentioned shadow the shadow part of yeah. you that yeah. shadow work 
you actually have to deal with, okay, what is this negative behavior that I perceive as negative? It's a part of me doing this for actually a positive reason. So I've got to get to the bottom of what it's trying to protect, find that trauma, and with its permission, go and heal that trauma. And I have to honor that part that's that's actually playing a heroic role. It's trying to keep that shadow activity or that shadow behavior is a part that's actually playing yeah. a, a heroic role. Showing you. Like a, almost like a, a, a soldier in battle that's mm-hmm. jumping on a grenade. It's yeah. like, oh my gosh, if I, if I let that grenade blow up, it'll kill everybody in this foxhole. So I'm going to jump on that grenade and take the pain in order to save everybody else. That's, that's a heroic role. And you've got to honor and acknowledge that part and say, Hey, shadowy behavior part doing that thing that I hate. (laughs) I realize that you're actually doing a heroic thing. Let's try can you tell me what it is that you're protecting against? Can you tell me why you're making me drink that much? What is it? Or making me throw into that rage? What are you protecting? Well, I'm protecting that pain, you know, that, that pain that I felt when our dad did that thing to us when we were three years old, hit us because we were showing, mm-hmm. um, you know, bravery. We stood up to him and said that was wrong. And he backhanded us. And it was so painful that our own dad would do that to us that we suppressed that brave part, that brave Mm -hmm. behavior. Like it was so horrific and it was so painful to have someone that we loved and looked up to and depended on our dad hit us with the back of his hand or metaphorically say that to us. Maybe didn't physically hit us, but hurt us in that way. I don't even want to remember how that felt. I don't even want to ever feel that again. And so I'm suppressing it so that when that comes up, you know, and we don't even know that we're doing it anyway. It's subconscious on so many levels, like the shadow works in shadows and it comes through this tiny corners and slips its way in until next thing you know, that you realize you've been shadowed out for the past three days and you haven't been what you would consider to be yourself because you realize that you have been You've been, you've been, <laughs> you were, you were hijacked almost. And it is so subtle in the ways that it moves. And it's so subtle in those strange ways that it moves about the consciousness. But like you said, is it, it's playing such an important role. And if we really do the good, great work that the alchemists speak of, you know, and not just transmuting the physical, but the conscious goodness, then we can, we can create that stone and, and have that, you know, <clears throat> beautiful, transition and transmutation and and the shadow is so important and you bring and we're talking about this in a time that uh the transition of of everything that's happening celestially and where we are it does make sense that we are talking about this you know uh with that last full moon and all these things that are happening now um one one thing I'll mention with when it comes to alcohol itself, you know, alchemists considered alcohol at one point to be a version of Philosopher's Stone. It was a point of a finished product that had its purpose and its use. 
for many different reasons. And then also, you know, some shamans down in, you know, Mesoamerica, ancient indigenous shamans, well, you know, they're like, don't drink your beer, don't drink your, you know, this, this, but the spirit of the agave will help you. The spirit, the agave, drink this mezcal or drink this tequila and then, you know, embrace the shadow. Let it come and dance together, you know, in the same room at the same time and look at it as you're having this like experience, you know, and yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> so that's the journey. <laughs> yeah, no, there, you said some great things and I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that, you know, negative behavior is good when I'm, when, um, and I don't, mm. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you're saying that, it, you know, I don't want embrace the shadow to be taken the wrong way and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know people think <laughs> oh okay i can just you know do violence to others and it doesn't uh like, no i was just working on my shadow cells sorry about yeah, that i'm just working i'm just letting <laughs> the shadow out no the 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 myths like you know you gave a great example of well like for three days it's almost like i was possessed well earlier in our conversation i gave the story from the myths of heracles getting you know possessed and doing things that harmed his family that those protective parts that are trying the, the trauma that we have that our protective parts are trying to suppress can inflict trauma on others and it's not good we we, we don't want to do that but it's like a picture heracles being taken over by you know demon possessed or you know, taken over by madness is a picture of, yeah, we can, as fathers, harm, do incredible psychological harm to our children, mm -hmm. even, you know, even if we're very well-intentioned because of our own trauma and because yeah. of our own. So <laughs> um, the, 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 the myths are trying to explain our situation to us, not really explain it to us, dramatize it depict it for us and say this is you you think there's a story about hercules no this is a story about you and me and everybody and how do we get back in how do we recover from that well hercules does have to go to the oracle at delphi yeah he has to go to the place where it says know thyself and he has to listen to the voice of the gods and then he has to do his 12 labors and all these things but it's a picture of us. The, the myths point us back towards recovery of self. Anyway. Um, the morality of mortality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's profound. Hopefully, I'm pointing people towards these incredible myths. The myths are there, whether whichever myths you want to go to, you can find the message in the Norse myths. You can find the message in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. All those stories are telling, pointing you to the same lesson. You can find mm -hmm. it in the Mesopotamian myths. You can find it in the myths of ancient Japan. You can find it in the sacred stories of the North American indigenous nations. You can find it in the Maya texts, the ones that have been preserved. You know, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, that whole story. Yeah, that whole story. Nice, nice little segue. You know, you, uh, where yeah. can Fire Tribe find you? <laughs> yeah thanks thanks again for you know to everyone who's listening i 
have a website at undyingstars.com where that leads you to those courses that I talked about. And I'm putting more stuff on that website now. You can also find me at starmythworld.com. Star Myths of the World is what it's short for. And so my Instagram is starmythworld as well. But starmythworld.com. If you just search for like my last name, Matheson, and stars on any search engine, you'll probably find your way to one of my websites. But the main one that I'm really working on right now is Undying Stars. And the the really big one that I've been working on for many years is starmythworld.com. Tons of content there. So, mm. you know, thanks again for having me. Of course, man. You do a great job too, by the way, when you said you hope that you're doing a good enough job at at relaying people to these myths to find things within themselves. You do that. You do a great job of it. And this, you know, yeah. episode amongst many others of your content that they can find on your YouTube channel and your books and everything really does detail that. And um, you do such a great job at explaining it, which, you know, just kind of means you've been studying it for so long and you've articulated it and sat down and actually done this great work. And it is really important for us to take this time to dig into these myths because, you know, once we understand the history in the past and, you know, we start to really, really make big differences and changes into the now and the future. And you're a huge proponent of that. And, you know, you're doing the great work. And for that, Major Mahalos. Hey, mahalo, aloha. <laughs> Let's try and live with the spirit of aloha. I think that is fantastic. Um, yeah, I have to. I have to remind myself of that sometimes when I'm surfing, and somebody's like yes. snaking, snaking a wave, and I'm like, wait a minute, I've gotta, <laughs> I've gotta have aloha spirit here. Um, I gotta get, <laughs> let, let my higher self take over, not my uh, you know angry self uh, take over, but. You know, I appreciate those kind words you said. It's, I'm not the teacher. I'm not the guru. It's the myths will point you to your higher self. And that's the one that can heal. And that's the one that can teach. And that's the one that interfaces like the temple at Delphi with that realm of inspiration. So I'm trying to point mm -hmm. people to know thyself. And that's the teacher that you need, not me, because uh, everyone who knows me well enough, like my close family knows, I'm a very flawed vessel. <laughs> so, pointing you to your higher self. That's the one that can teach you. Well, thank you so Beautiful. much, Dave, for joining us. We appreciate your time and uh, love to hear your stories, man. And uh, you, you do such a good job uh, relating it to the myths and, and to, you know, our own mortality here on this planet and, and, you know, give us inspiration of what to look for. Uh, so we appreciate it. Thank you very much for being here and fire tribe. If you're not down with that, wake, wake up. up.